Preface In the following pages, I have sought to satisfy a request, often made to me, to give a short but comprehensive view of the whole fabric of the arcane mysteries and affinity with the Masonic system. And I here take the opportunity of recording my protest against the skeptical tendencies of the present generation of the moderns who are Masons, and against the efforts that are made, in season and out of season, to underrate the indubitable antiquity of the Masonic ceremonies. These efforts, which tend to lower the prestige of our ancient craft, are not altogether without good results, as they have led to a more careful examination of our Masonic legends and of ancient documents and I have therefore added to a general history of the arcane schools a view sufficiently explicit of the ancient rites of the Masons, leaving the intelligent Freemasons of our day to trace the relative bearing of these. It is no compliment to the Masons who founded the Grand Lodge of England in 1717, and who, however ill-informed they may have been in London, yet, as is amply proved, accepted old customs of the guilds with discrimination, to suppose that they unanimously undertook to impose upon the public a system as ancient which they themselves were engaged in concocting. Nor is it any compliment to the intelligence of their imagined victims. Whether or not I succeed in convincing the candid reader of the great antiquity of the institution must be left to time. Those of my readers who are pledged to the views of these moderns will no doubt adhere through life to the ideas in which they have been indoctrinated themselves. But inquiry is progressing, and there is still a very large substratum of the craft whose belief is yet strong in the good faith of their predecessors. Whether in what was the last century termed ancients or moderns, and it is to such that I more particularly address myself. The best reward for my labors would be to find that the study of our craft and analogous societies was making progress, and that others are supplying new facts from old books that may aid in bridging over any chasms that may be noticed in the following pages. My endeavor has been to print well-authenticated matter only, in order that the information supplied may be reliable. Every paragraph is a fact or deduction from facts, and however much condensed nothing of the moment known to the present time and having a bearing upon Freemasonry has been omitted. The works of the learned brother George Oliver D.D. lack critical cohesion and have consequently fallen into undeserved neglect, but sufficient will be found in these pages to show that his theories are not devoid of method and will admit of an authentic construction being put upon those claims which he advances for the antiquity of the Masonic institution. Those who obstinately deny the existence of anything which is outside their own comprehension are fully as credulous as those who accept everything without discrimination. There are certain intellects which lack intuition and the ability to take in and assimilate abstruse truths, just as much as there are people who are colorblind or deaf to the more delicate notes of music. This was well known to the ancient theologians and mystics and the reasons which they assigned for the mental incapacity will appear in the following pages. I cannot allow the opportunity to pass in closing my labors without thanking my publisher for his invariable kindness, courtesy, and general care. And the reader is also much indebted to him for the compilation of the index. We have considerably exceeded the 500 pages with which we made the announcement to the public, hence the slight delay in publication. 
I have also to thank our subscribers for their unwearied patience in waiting for the appearance of this work, which, except for modern revisions, has lain dormant for ten years. John Yarker, West Didsbury, Manchester, 17th April, 1909. Introduction The object of the following chapters is to give a broad but condensed view of the various traces which are to be found amongst the ancients, in their religion, in their art, and in their buildings, civil, sacred, and military, of a speculative system such as now professed under the designation of Freemasonry. The work is necessarily a compilation of suitable information gathered from books upon history, mystery, mysticism, and Freemasonry, but it embraces the most recent views upon these subjects, which have been evolved by a close critical examination and generally accepted by the learned. In the first and second chapters will be found the proofs of a system of most ancient sacerdotal grades and mysteries which in the earliest or proto-Aryan civilization added to their ceremonies those emblems of geometry and art which have been transmitted by Freemasonry. In the third and fourth chapters we see more clearly the advance which the Aryan civilization introduced into the primitive association, the development of a caste organization, and the reduction of the more ancient civilization by invasions to a subject state, which in time created an independent system of art mysteries combined with natural religion, or what we now term Freemasonry. In the fifth and sixth chapters, we have attempted the elucidation of the doctrine and symbolism of the ancient mysteries and their relationship with the minor schools of philosophy which sprang from them, as for instance, the Pythagorean and Platonic schools proving that all these possessed much in common, in doctrine, rites, and symbols, not only with each other, but with Freemasonry of our own days, without the distinguishing features of the latter as an operative art. Whilst, side by side, the arcane schools of philosophy passed onwards through the centuries of Christianity, in numerous branches, with the old rites and symbols. In the 7th and 8th chapters, we have, for convenience, a recapitulation of proofs of the existence and transmission of art mysteries and symbols from the most ancient times to our own days, with details of the constitutions of a fraternity, speculative in its teachings and operative in its application, for the conservation of arts and sciences and their tripartite application to houses, churches, and fortifications and which entering this country in British and Roman times from Egypt was modified by Kuldi, monks, and learned clerics, and so continued as folkmotes or guilds in the time of the Anglo-Saxons. In the ninth and tenth chapters, some space is devoted to an inquiry as to the origin of the Semitic legends of Freemasonry, which entering this country in Anglo-Norman times with an Eastern system of work of marks and symbols were engrafted upon the older constitutions, together with some account of the esoteric marks, emblems, and rites of the organized building brotherhood who erected our noble Gothic edifices, and references are made to many of these edifices in illustration of Freemasonry. We see the end of the Gothic and revival of the classic Arcanum, the remaining 11th, 12th, and 13th chapters give a short account of the principal points in the history of modern Freemasonry from 1717 to our own days, and which includes a chapter upon the design, origin, and history of what has come to be termed 
high-grade Freemasonry, and out of which sprung the distinction between ancient and modern Masonry, a dissension which continued until the union of these two sects of Masons in 1813. Lastly, in the appendix, we have added a full series of constitutional charges which continued in force from Saxon times until the year 1717, and even much later. These we have slightly modernized for the ease of the reader. Part 1. Origin and Antiquity of the Arcane Schools Chapter 1. Archaic Legends It may reasonably be supposed that the advancement of mankind, which we term civilization, had made great progress in hot climates before the arts, science, and more especially the mystery of building temples and houses of stone, brick, or wood were developed. Religious mysteries, the rudiments of science, and open and secret worship, if not innate, which we believe them to be, would arise and as the erection first of temples and then of houses indicates a knowledge of geometry and constructive tools, it implies a more advanced culture. The tradition which has reached us through the ages is that mankind contracted very slowly the protoplasm which forms our natural body, after which a variety of wants became apparent that were in earlier ages unfelt. Whether we accept or reject this view, we can realize that the united intellect of thousands of years has been unable to supply any better idea of the creation and progress of humanity upon earth than that handed down to us from the ancient sages. As man's material nature increased, his spirituality decreased, and as his intuition tended to become dormant, means were sought which might restore his ancient status. The discipline necessary for this purpose was neither suitable nor agreeable to the majority, and this led to the establishment of secret or esoteric schools for those who sought the higher spiritual development. Of an unpretentious nature at first and possessing but moral trials or proofs, these schools gradually assumed a magnificent exterior under state control, with even proofs dangerous to life, and were designated the mysteries. The natural wants had now come to be provided for, the arts and sciences were developed, architecture, metallurgy, shipbuilding, astronomy, agriculture, etc., were added to theosophia and religious ritual. This is the tradition of the mysteries. There are certain ancient legends in regard to a lost or sunken continent, and a deluge which, though not absolutely accepted as history, are too probable to be passed over in silence. It is admitted by scientists that the surface of our earth is continually wasting away, with the result that the bed of the ocean is being slowly raised and the geographical position of the land is changing. We see in one locality that the ocean is washing the land away, whilst in another the sea is receding. Equally great climactic changes are slowly developing. Thus, Greenland was at one time a torrid clime which at a later age, to be reckoned only by tens of thousands of years, was succeeded by intense cold, and when our own island was depopulated by a deluge of ice and frost. These changes are attendant upon what astronomers term the precession of the equinoxes. There is a gradual displacement of the poles of the earth, occurring in cycles or periods of 25,000 years, and the last of which reached its extreme point about 12,500 years ago when it is held that a great cataclysm occurred which changed the face of the entire globe. 
it follows of necessity that men's habits must change with climactic changes. The Hindu priests have a complicated series of cycles within cycles, which are not altogether imaginary, but are grouped upon recondite astronomical calculations. When we remember that there is a great central sun round which the entire galaxy of planets and suns revolve, we may draw the analogy that in immense cycles, what we may term seasonal changes or states are produced, even on these planets and suns similar to those which occur on our Earth. There exists in Tibet and India a secret doctrine which is of unquestioned antiquity and of which analogical confirmation may be found in the writings of the ancient philosophers. This doctrine allows for the existence in extreme antiquity of a sunken continent in the Pacific Ocean, of which the present islands are mountaintops, and in the Atlantic Ocean of seven islands, the last of which sank beneath the waters about the period which we have assigned for a great cataclysm, or 12,500 years ago. Beyond this account, which in the East is considered historical, lies the cyclical doctrine of a day and night of Brahm, or by whatever other word the impersonal deity is designated. These cycles are the outbreathing and inbreathing of the unknowable deity, or ever-living spirit and primal matter. The gradual progress of all created matter is the divine day which proceeds from the ethereal or commentary to the concrete by means of the tatwas which will correspond with the genetic days of Moses, and these again with the gestation of the ordinary fetus. In the divine night, everything again reverts to the ethereal state, to be again followed in immense cycles by a reversed action. The mythological account of the Hindu paradise places Mount Meru at the North Pole, or the imperishable land, a circular island upon which is the city of the gods which is supposed to be a perfect square guarded by a wall protected by eight circular towers, and the holy mount, which is of conical shape, rises in the center of the city. Temples have been designed to represent this legendary Meru, and it has also formed the basic plan of cities, which we may mention later. It is also noteworthy that the Egyptian legend of the mystery god Osiris, or Haseri, is applicable to 68 degrees north latitude or where the sun dies for forty days, and which was then a hot climate according to the legends. We know that the mammoth existed there and fed on tropical herbage. The north they considered to have been torrid, owing to the then nebulous or cometary state of our globe, which had neither cooled down nor hardened. Humanity of a sort existed in that land, but was moon-bred, ethereal, globular, gigantic, sexless, generated as our atoms by self-multiplication. To these succeeded a second race, giants, of whom the later and more material were inspired by the solar gods. These were dual-sexed, or hermaphrodite, as many forms of life yet are, and more compact than the first race. The Arabs and Persians have legends of such a race, and represent that it was ruled by seventy-two kings of the name of Suleiman, of whom the last three reigned 1,000 years each. It does not seem that these Suleimans, who are par excellence the rulers of all jinns, afrits, and other elemental spirits, bear any relationship to the Israelite king, that being a more modern application. We find the name as one of the gods of the ancient Babylonians, and the late Dr. Keneally, who as a Persian scholar translated the poems of Hafiz, 
asserts that the earliest Aryan teachers were named Mahabods or Solimai, and that Suleiman was an ancient title of regal power, synonymous with Sultan in Asia, Pharaoh in Egypt, Khan in Tartary, Tsar in Russia. There's also a Persian legend which alleges that in the mountains of Kaf, which can only be reached by a magic ring, that of Suleiman, there is a gallery built by the giant Arzik, where the statutes of the ancient men are preserved who were ruled by the Suleimans or wise kings of the East. Many an Eastern storyteller laments the departed glories of the throne of Suleiman, located near the present Aden in Arabia, which it has been suggested may have been populated by Kushites from the Hindu Kush. There is a very wonderful structure hewn out of solid rock on the confines of Afghanistan and India called the Takti Suleiman, or Throne of Solomon, its ancient Aryan name being Shankar Acharya, fabled to have been erected by supernatural means and known to have been a great rendezvous for 2,000 years of merchants' caravans. It is on the western side of the Suleiman Mountains. Leaving this slight digression, we return to the secret doctrine, which goes on to relate that in course of time, a third race of men were produced with bones and divided into sexes, and who are practically the first race of Adamic men. For the rib of Adam is a euphemism alluding to the division of sex. These are said, after developing a monosyllabic language now represented by Chinese, to have spread over the long-lost Pacific continent. Here they became great builders, developed the religious mysteries, and spread from north to south, populating the Atlantic continent, who are considered a fourth race after the Pacific continent had disappeared. Here was the home of the proto-Aryan race of a brown-white complexion. A colony of these settled in Egypt in remote ages, where they introduced the astronomy and zodiac to Asura Maya, of Raman Kapura, and the pupil of Narida, of whose books the Indians claim to have some fragments. Another colony of educated priests settled upon an island, where the desert of Gobi now exists, but then an inland lake, which held in its bosom twelve smaller islands. These priests, or at least some of them, allied themselves with a red-yellow mongoloid race, possessing a great intuitive powers, a race of which the Chinese are a branch, for it is claimed that there were seven sub-races in each of the third and fourth races. The intermarriage of these two races, which we may compare with that of the sons of God with the daughters of men, gave rise to a fifth race of Aryans, who sent out civilizing missions over the world and it is asserted that there are records which show that these priests traveled into Europe to superintend the erection of religious structures, such as existed amongst the British Druids. It is not impossible, as the Eastern civilization had a lengthy precedence over that of Europe. When the island of Atlantis sank, a pass was reft which drained the desert of Gobi, and caused the Aryans to take refuge in the mountains and high tablelands and the change of climate may have sent out others to seek a warmer home, others being forced outwards by the increase in population and thus compelled to colonize new regions. Tibet has preserved many details of the wars of this lost Atlantis, charging the cause of its destruction to the cultivation by a portion of its tribes of black magic or the left-hand path. 
It may be mentioned that there yet remains between Kabul and Balkh, or the ancient Bactria, some five immense statues from 120 to 60 feet high, said to symbolize this doctrine of the five successive races. It is curious that on Easter Island there are some similar statues ranging from 70 to 3 feet high, mentioned by Cook as equal to our best masonry, and of which investigation has been made by the Smithsonian Institute, and which are said to have been wrought in lava with iron tools. The Egyptian priests had a chronology vastly in excess of the ordinary computation, and the accounts dovetail with that which we have already related. Herodotus, who visited Egypt about 450 BC, states that the following were careful records of time preserved by the priests, before any king, a dynasty of gods, ruled in Egypt. The first of these were eight great gods, sometimes enumerated as seven, then followed the twelve, who were produced from the eight, of which the Egyptian and Tyrian Heracles was one, and who ruled 17,000 years before the historian's time. Horus, the son of Osiris, who the historian tells us is identical with Bacchus and his son, with the Grecian Apollo, ruled 15,000 years before his own visit, from the time of Menes, the first human king and founder of Memphis, the priests read over to him the names of 330 kings, and also showed him the statues of 341 hierophants which the historian estimates at three to a century as representing 11,340 years from the foundation of Memphis. Herodotus was prohibited from giving any esoteric information, but we may point out that there is an affinity between the twelve zodiacal signs and the labors of the Grecian Heracles, whom Herodotus considers to be much more modern than the Heracles of Egypt and Tyre, and whose labors were applied to the Hercules of the Latins. The great gods may refer to the Kabiric cult, the lesser gods to the Aryan, but we shall see more of this as we proceed. The former are represented by the planets and the latter by the zodiacal signs. The birth of the gods may indicate the introduction of their worship into a country or district. Their marriage, the era when one worship was associated with another, whilst their death may be explained on the doctrine of an alleged reincarnation. The Egyptians, Herodotus says, were the first who erected altars, shrines, and temples, and who engraved the figures of animals in stone, the first to divide the year into twelve months and to give names to the twelve gods, the first to defend the doctrine of the soul's immortality, the first to develop geometry. It is worthy of note that 3, 7, and 12 are prominently represented in Hebrew. There are three mother letters, seven double and twelve simple characters, which actually bear a planetary and zodiacal signification. The Hebrew alphabet is but an adaptation from an older one, but the arrangement proves that the inventor was an initiate of the mysteries, of which this alphabet is the synthesis. It is asserted that in the most ancient times there were two secret zodiacal signs, and ten that were known as also ten simple characters. It is now impossible to fix with mathematical precision the dates of such zodiacs as exist. Of the Egyptian that at Dendera might refer to 13,000 BC, but there is one at Esni which might refer to 15,000 BC. Without doubt, the ancient hierophant who designed these figures embodied there a secret doctrine, 
and it has been supposed that the system was intended to symbolize the destinies of humanity for the 2,500 years which each sign represents, or for the period which the sun occupies in overrunning a sign. The chronology here set forth is much in excess of that allowed by the more extravagant archaeologists, but in some confirmation of it, Baron Bunsen admits traces of buried pottery which may be 20,000 years old, estimated upon the deposit which the Nile leaves at each annual flow. The Aryan legend of the sunken Atlantis is said to have been recorded in Egypt. Plato indirectly informs us in the Timaeus that when his ancestor Solon visited Egypt, the priests of Neith at Sais informed him that many catastrophes had occurred to mankind in remote times, the most remarkable of which was one contained in the records of the temple, that some 9,000 years before this visit, which took place about 600 BC, a large continent and some adjacent islands had perished in one night by earthquakes, and that from these islands was the way to the true continent that the inhabitants of the Atlantis were a race who recognized that great advantages sprang from a just and righteous commerce, that they had conquered and colonized Greece and extended themselves on one side as far as Libya and on the other side to Tyrrhenia. But a part of the island's inhabitants had given themselves up to selfish aggrandizement and had made war upon the well-disposed people and to subvert the good regulations which had been established by Poseidon and his son Atlas. Whereupon the incensed gods in one night sank the country of Atlantis beneath the waves of the ocean. It is further stated that the country had temples of black and white stones decorated within and without with precious metals. The shrine of Poseidon and the palace of the king was surrounded with three sheets of water, forming three parallel concentric circles and a temple existed roofed with gilded copper. Theopompus, in his Merope, attributes a similar account to the priests of Phrygia, and tells us that the island contained a fighting and a contemplative race. The former knew how to make themselves invulnerable to iron, so that they could only be wounded by stone or wood. Proclus quotes Marcellus on the subject. Blavatsky says that they had a written character and used it with the tan skins of monstrous animals now extinct. Professor Bodler Sharp thinks that allied forms of birds point to a lost continent which stretched from South America to Australia, with an arm extending to Madagascar, and this would meet the account of Plato. We have another account similar in its essentials to that recorded, the Popovo, or Book of the Azure Vale of the Mexicans tells us that these Atlanteans were a race that knew all things by intuition and repeat the charge of sorcery or black magic as the cause of the destruction of their country by the gods. This book allegorizes and personifies the forces of nature. The Trono MS records the same matter with special mention of the geological changes with the catastrophe caused. Dr. Le Flangion translates a passage thus, In the year 6 Khan, on the 11th Muluk, in the month Zak, there occurred terrible earthquakes which continued without interruption until the 13th Chuan. The MS goes on to say that the land of Mu disappeared and that ten countries were scattered, and that this occurred 8,060 years before the book was written. This writer advances still more extraordinary matter confirmative of the statements of the book. 
we find in the grave mounds of a prehistoric race, as well as in the architectural sculptures of the Mayu, the cross in its various forms, the Tau cross of Egypt on the breast of numerous statues throughout America, the equilimbed cross and the so-called Latin cross, a form equally found in Egypt in pre-Christian times. There is the winged egg with a symbolic explanation same as was given to it in Egypt. Brother George Oliver, D.D., asserts that these races used a cube of pure crystal in their temples. And Dr. Le Plongeon, who spent 12 years in overhauling the ruins of Yucatan, has found cubicle dye, upon which is engraved a human hand, as well as crystals of a globular form, arrows of jade, the hardest of stones, etc. The hand, as a symbol, held an important place amongst these people as it is found stamped on the inside of buildings as if it was done with the actual hand of the architect as a mark of approval, or as a modern Indian Raja stamps his own hand on the standard given to one of his troops. The same custom appears in the temples of India. Le Plongeon further found an altar which is a facsimile of one at Anger Thom in Cambodia. And he also claims that he has discovered the tomb, statue, and cremated body of Prince K. Kanchi, the high priest. In the center of his mausoleum was represented twelve serpent heads, and the statue which he disinterred at Chichen Itza, the city of the sages, possessed a carved apron on which is figured an open human hand. The number seven is an important factor in their secret symbolism. The doctor, who found a difficulty in getting into print because the publishers saw no money in the subject, claims that the following account is sculptured upon the ruined temple of Uxmal and confirmed by the Toronto MS as the veritable history of the country, but which has become mythologized in the old world. The history of an empire more ancient than Atlantis, embracing three continents peopled by a red and black race, that is including North and South America and Atlantis, that this empire was symbolized by the trident and the three-peaked crown of the kings, and alluded to in mythology as the kingdom of Poseidon, Kronos, or Saturn. There was, says the author, a deified king named Can, whose totem or emblem was the serpent, and a rule of his kingdom, as in some Asiatic countries, was that the eldest son should marry his youngest sister. This Can had three sons and two daughters, thus making a family of seven, each of whom ruled one of the seven cities. Following the rule already mentioned, one of the brothers named Ko, Kakmol, or Leopard, took his wife, his sister Mu, but their brother Ak, whose totem was the turtle, out of love for his sister, slew her husband treacherously. According to the custom of the country, he is represented as offering her fruit, whilst she is seated under a tree, upon which is perched a macaw as the totem of Mu. The serpent, or her husband's emblem, is twined in the branches of the tree, whilst a monkey stands by as if representing a counsellor. The tree is the emblem of the country, and the representation is in close conformity with the legend of Genesis as the temptation of Eve. Mu refuses to accept this symbol of the love of Ak, and he puts her to death, as well as her elder brother Ke Kanchi, or Hunake, the wise fish, the high priest. It is noteworthy that in the sculptured representations of this legend, or history, whichever it may be, the murderer Ak is represented as the sun worshipper, whilst Ko and his sister Mu venerate the serpent. 
A curious analogy to this is to be found in Egypt. It is in a statue of Typhon or Set, as described by Plutarch. It is the representation of a hippopotamus, which corresponds to the turtle of Ak, and on the back of the animal is a hawk and a serpent in the act of fighting. The Plongeon again affords another correspondence with Egypt in the description of the twelve kings descended from the seven of the race of Khan, who ruled before the destruction of Atlantis. For we have here the twelve minor gods and the zodiac, and the seven greater gods or planets. The account may be veritable history, as Le Plongeon maintains that it is, but it is possible that the author may have mistaken for history a still older mythology carried from Atlantis to Yucatan. The Temple of Chichen Itza is itself an interesting study. It is built on a ground plan of three apartments, which makes a triple cross. In one peculiarity, it corresponds with some ancient temples in Egypt and Cambodia, where a keyed arch was then not known. It has a triangular arch constructed by the overlapping of large stones, in which the three sons of Khan are symbolized. By taking in the sides, we have five to include the two sisters, and adding the ends, we have seven, or the whole family, numbers which are sacred both in Central America and in the East. Over the door of the sanctuary is represented both the crossbones and a skeleton holding up its two fleshless arms in the form of two squares, a position which is sometimes represented in Egypt as that in which the soul appears before Osiris. Here again, it is singular that a corresponding doctrine is found in India as to the symbolism of the walls and floors of their temples. There are other temples in Yucatan which were intended for sun worship, the ground plan being three concentric circles, like the lakes we have mentioned as surrounding a palace in Atlantis. But the most extraordinary part of the claims of Le Plongeon is that he has discovered the interpretation of the hieroglyphical inscriptions and finds that the character used, with the exception of a very few letters, is absolutely identical with the hieractic alphabet of Egypt, whilst the language which these characters bespeak is yet found in almost pristine purity in the dialect of Patan, a language which is perfectly constructed and strikingly resembles the Coptic. As in Egypt and Chaldea, the ground plan of a temple was the oblong square which was again the symbol both in Yucatan and Egypt of the letter ma, or M, which implies the earth and the word Maya. In the names of the Greek alphabet, Le Plongeon finds a poem, the Patan words of which gives the history of the great catastrophe. The Mayo had their religious mysteries, which were governed by twelve priests, with initiations and carefully guarded sacred rites of which some account may be gathered in the writings of the Quiches, a neighboring race at Zibalba. In passing through these initiations, the neophyte had to undergo most severe bodily trials, which Le Plongeon compares with certain descriptions in the Chaldean Book of Enoch. It is not, however, shown that in these mysteries art symbolism exists such as we shall find in Tibet and China and in Freemasonry. We learn elsewhere from some researches made at the instance of the Smithsonian Institute that these, or similar mysteries, are yet preserved by the Zuni people and consist of twelve orders of priests, and to some degrees of which Mr. Frank H. Cushing has recently obtained admission after undergoing severe bodily trials. Historical and religious analogies with Yucatan are to be found amongst the Japanese, who represent the first seven gods by the same symbols as the Mayas. 
And Brother George Oliver sets forth that a Japanese candidate in initiation into their mysteries represents the sun's passage through the twelve zodiacal signs. It is singular that the Mayo legends or mythology should contain so much in common with Egypt, Asia, and India. Persia has the tradition of one brother slain by another. The Hindu Ramayana represents that the king of the monkey race, perhaps an inferior aboriginal tribe such as the Adamans, had two sons, Bali and Sulgravia, each of whom desired the same wife, and Sulgravia, by the aid of the divine Rama, treacherously slew his brother Bali. It is alleged in confirmation of Solon's statement that Atlantean emigrants settled in Egypt and Greece, that they equally settled in the Deccan. Indeed, the Ramayana states that Maya, the magician and architect of the Devanas, took possession of South India and navigated the ocean from west to east and from the south to the north. The word Maya here meaning a dweller upon the sea. In the Atlantic islands or mountaintops of Atlantis, there is a general belief that a system of secret mysteries prevails, and this seems to have been established as a fact by several recent Masonic experiments. The natives of Virginia have a society of initiates designated Husanawar. The mother prepares a funeral pyre for her son, of whom a simulated sacrifice is to be made, as in the case of Isaac. And during the preparation, she weeps him as dead. A tree is cut down and a crown made from its boughs. The initiate is given a powerful narcotic by which he is thrown into a state of somnambulism. And after a protracted retirement, he is looked upon by his tribe as a new man. Again, the Negroes of Guinea have certain mysteries called the belly paro. The candidate is led into a wood where he is divested of all clothing and metals. Here he passes five years in absolute seclusion. After this, he is initiated into the most secret doctrines of the sect. The object of their worship, as with the Maori, is Rangi and Papa, or the Heavenly Father and the Earthly Mother. Even in the Pacific Islands, or the mountain tops of a great sunken continent which has been denominated Lumeria, there exists a system of religious mysteries. Hecathorn mentions that at Tahiti and scattered over Polynesia is a society called Arioiti, which has seven degrees of initiation, which none but the king may pass over all at once. One of their ceremonies is practiced at the winter solstice, and it is a funeral ceremony resembling that in honor of Osiris, Bacchus, and Adonis. The meaning underlying this initiation is the generative powers of nature, and laymen have to undergo severe bodily trials. There are cave pictures in Australia of a race more ancient than the Bosjesmen. One of these caves has a robed figure with a rainbow round the head, which the Reverend J. Matthew considers to be identical with the chief god of Sumatra. There are many general assertions that a system of signs identical with modern Freemasonry exists amongst the native Australians, and one such account appears in Ars Quator Coronatorum. But the most precise account is a paper in the New Zealand Craftsman of 8 February 1898 by Brother Henry Stowell, whose grandmother was a Maori. The paper deserves to be fully copied. The Maori, in their traditions, Fangatwati, epic poems, and language show conclusively that ages ago there was a Hawaki, a grand temple known as Wakura, 
at which temple meetings were regularly held and presided over by Tohonga, or initiates of a very high order, and wherein was taught and practiced a perfect system of principles in an esoteric form, with exhaustive and appropriate rituals, also symbols, signs, and passwords, and that these were kept and preserved on tables of stone, which latter were deposited in the temple. The ritual and symbols were entrusted by the Arikiranji, a divine and supreme head, to the various officers in order to properly carry out the ceremonials connected with these meetings, whereat only those others who were entitled to be present had the happiness of listening to the recitals and of observing the uses of the higher symbols. Regarded from a Maori point of view, this masonry is neither more nor less than the relation of the main features of creation and the origin and history of the higher destiny of man, which relation was accompanied with appropriate symbols. Tain was the G-A-O-T-U. He may or may not be identical with the Chaldean Oanis. The language in which this wisdom religion was embodied is extremely archaic but thanks to my having been taught in my youth by an aged Tohonga and relative some of the symbols and mysteries, I understand many of the illusions and am acquainted with various signs. The knowledge of astronomy being absolutely essential to a proper realization of the principles of the order, its adepts, Tohonga, Kokorangi, constantly taught in observatories its elements and phenomena to those who were accepted for qualification. Under the Maori system, the two main pillars, together with their chapters, were represented before the dome of the sky. These were divine. A subordinate pillar was the pillar of the earth. At certain points, the nagana, or center, was traced. These were two great circles which intersected and which had their corresponding circles. The square was taught upon four points of the visible universe. Moral teachings were more or less associated with the figure of the Ripika cross, the type of good and evil, or enlightenment and ignorance by two opposing lines. It appears that there is a universal tendency to restrict, thwart, or delimit its beneficial functions. Hence, he wawe tapika tata ara Ripika, a foot which diverges from the good or pure to the evil or impure path. The figure of the triangle, Tantora, forms the basis of or for the most elaborate calculations in connection with astronomy and geography. The term mason, masonry, masonic are used in the English sense and for convenience. Days and months were measured by successive phases of the moon, while the year was marked by the heliacal rising in June of the star Puanga, Regal in Orion, due east this being the star of the Maori New Year, and the first sign of the Awahio Rangi, or Zodiac. I have no knowledge of the use of such a thing as the 24-inch gauge, but can vouch that calculations of length or distance were worked out with nice exactitude. The signs in use varied from those of the Europeans. Still in some important respects, so far as Amir M.M. is able to compare there is an astonishing agreement, and the agreement suggests a variation of the European scale, owing to the incorporation or blending therein of the terms of the oath, the ordinance of the tapu sanctity with its Masonic very essence, any infringement thereof or neglect of its observance by whomsoever resulted in sure and speedy death, 
which was the true penal sign, silent and awesome. Then again, speculative masonry was not advanced or urged, and each one appears to have used his enlightenment for the purpose of furthering his knowledge along these ancient lines, which embraced the complete system, offering that fullness of happiness granted to mortals who were enabled to penetrate the very depths of nature, and by reveling in her mysteries attain the threshold of the divine. There are numerous other archaic legends which might have appeared in this chapter, but which it will be more convenient to refer to hereafter by way of illustration. Those of Genesis, for instance, come within this category. The Adamic legend of Genesis has the appearance of being the esoteric caste mythology of a tribe which settled in the Caucasian highlands, holding the Aryan doctrine of divine incarnations to which they gave the expression of a coming Messiah, or divine reincarnation, who was to redeem and rehabilitate their own fallen race alone. And we have seen that the serpent was equally an esoteric emblem in America. Analogous legends to those of Genesis appear also in Vedaic literature. A clergyman recently advanced in his book entitled The Fall of Adam that it allegorized the intercourse of the higher spiritual or Adamic man with the lower and soulless race of pre-Adamites. And as we are not bound down by the rabbinical chronology, we may carry such a theory back to the moon and sun races of Tibet. In the American can, we may have a coincidence with the Tartar title of Khan, and perhaps with the biblical Cain. In the scriptural account, it is Cain, the eldest son, who, like the Tibetans, offers a sacrifice of the fruits of the earth, slays his younger brother Abel, who offers a sacrifice of blood, and who leaves no progeny. The continuance of a spiritually-minded line devolves upon the third son, or race of Seth. It is after the marriage of these sons of God with the daughters of men that we find the union of the worldly arts of the line of Cain with the more spiritual line of Seth. According to the Talmud, Lamech marries the two daughters of Kenan, to whom it assigns the stone tablets of prophecy. The progeny of these marriages become men of renown, Jabal, Jubal, Tubal, Cain, etc. In Egypt, owing either to a racial inversion of the legend, which may have either been the production of some very old racial war, or later to mark their detestation of the Hexos, or shepherd kings, the priests made of the god Seth or Seth, a devil identical with Typhon who murdered his brother Osiris. There existed in Africa, contemporary with the beginning of Christianity, a sect of Abelites, and it is not improbable that the Syrian Baal, the Cretan Abilos, the Celtic Abelio, and the Greek Apollo were modified versions of the Hebrew Hebel or Abel. It is worthwhile to note that the Jewish Bible makes the line of Cain to be the first to build a city which may mean a series of wooden huts analogous to those which originated the trabeated or beam style of stonework, prevailing amongst the early Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans in their temples, and coming down even to Christian times, found as well in the cave temples of India, which are richly and wonderfully carved to represent woodwork. After the flood, it is the descendants of Ham who become the great builders and Japhet is to dwell in the tents of Shem, which tent is the prototype of the pagodas of China, Persia, and Japan. As these legendary accounts of an art which spread from a sunken continent are scarcely more than prehistoric tradition, 
we need not to follow the subject further in this chapter. Widely spread as these traditions are, they can scarcely be altogether baseless. Some confirmation has been found by scientific sea soundings, and further corroboration is afforded in the accepted fact that all the Pacific Islanders are of the same race and speak dialects of the same language, and this at a distance from each other which is impassable to their small boats. All equally say that their forefathers dwelt in a land over which the waves of the ocean now sweep. We are, for these various reasons, justified in a belief in the veritable existence of such continents, and by the same parity of reasoning, we find sacred and secret mysteries existing amongst them, in the Pacific, Atlantic, and in Australia. We are justified in supposing that these sacred schools are as old as the race that inhabited these continents. We see, however, that these mysteries have no architectural aims, and are a part of the conjecture with which we began this chapter as to the relative position of the religion and art. If the reader places no confidence in these traditions, until science has pronounced upon them, he can forget that he has read them and pass on to what is more generally accepted. In the following pages, closer proof will be found of the existence of a system resembling Freemasonry. And though we have not a minute book to prove that primeval man invented Freemasonry under a more ancient name and then established lodges in Tartary, Egypt, Babylon, Greece, Italy, Britain, etc. Yet the fact that similar societies existed in all these countries is indisputable, and there is no doubt that other and more important links will yet be brought to light by a diligent perusal of old classical authors, by someone who has the intuitive ability to understand the language of mystery. Chapter 2 Proto-Aryan Civilization and Mysteries Philologists seem to be fast arriving at the view that when the whole earth was of one language and of one speech, it was a primitive monosyllabic or Turanian tongue. The word Turanian is most indefinite, for it is taken to include the small, dark, long-headed Dravidian race of India which penetrated Britain before the Aryan Celt, and of which the Basques of Spain are a survival, the long-headed white race of Scandinavian hunters, and the white, broad-headed mongoloid whom we chiefly term Proto-Aryan, as an early branch of the Aryan race, a race which in prehistoric times spread from Lapland to Babylon and from India to Egypt and Europe. The modern discoveries of archaeologists in the countries occupied in remote times by this once powerful proto-Aryan race have scarcely yet had time to filter down into the ordinary Masonic channels, but they must in course of time considerably modify the views of older writers upon our Masonic mysteries. It would seem from what can be gathered that we owe advanced building in stone and brick to this race and the assimilation of their so-called Turanian speech is indicated by this that Monsieur Lenormand traces the remotely connected Proto-Median and Akkadian of Babylon to the ultra-Altaic family of languages, traces the Aryan to the same Finnic race of the Ural Mountains, and the anthropological evidence is as conclusive as the language of the Ugro-Altaic origin of the Aryan race. It may have taken tens of thousands of years for the development of Proto-Aryan into the Indo-Iranian tongue, Zend, Sanskrit, Pushta, Baluchia, as well as the 
Aero-European languages, including Greek, Latin, Slavonic, Letic, and Teutonic. From it also sprang at an earlier period the Celtic of Europe, and from it, by a probable mixture with the Black or Hamitic speech, the Semitic tongues spoken in Assyria, Phoenicia, Arabia, and Palestine. Even with the comparatively slight knowledge which we possess of the ancient Turanian and Proto-Aryan speeches, it may be taken for granted that a race which had founded a language which embraced certain roots equally found in Teutonic, Greek, Celtic, Semitic, and Sanskrit, and their cognate dialects before separating into colonies and which embraced terms in art, agriculture, jurisprudence, family life, religion, etc., had even then made progress in geometry and the building of temples and houses and architecture generally. In this chapter, however, we are dealing more particularly with an earlier phase of culture, but it is necessary to say some little of Aryan advancement. A high state of civilization was developed in the highlands of Europe and extended to other centers in northern India, which included Tibet. The Indian Vedas assigned the center of their culture to the Himalayan source of the Ganges, the abode of the gods. The Persian Avesta seems to point to the northern plateau of Pamir. We have no certain information in regard to the departure of colonies from their parent home, but no doubt the causes were various. The continuous increase of population would of itself make it a necessity. The Zend Avesta attributes their departure from the original home to climactic changes. Ahriman, the evil spirit who is mentioned both in the Avesta and the Vedas, introduced cold. The nomadic habits of the people as breeders of cattle led them into Europe. In the Himalayan center of that of the Hindu, a war arose between those who had assumed divine powers in virtue of their orally acquired knowledge of the sacred hymns, and the warrior of Maharaja class, who were subdued by a divine being who incarnated as Rama, upon which the priests allowed favorable terms and permitted the warriors to receive a limited amount of sacred knowledge, and to hear the Vedas when collected in writing. Red. A previous incarnation is alleged for the benefit of the monkey race, by which is perhaps meant some low caste tribe, but that of Rama represents some prehistoric reformer of the Turanian culture, to whom a divine origin is assigned. At the period of when the advance into India began, some 6,000 to 8,000 years ago, a race existed under the name of Chandalas, probably partly Aryan and partly Hamatic and other conquered Turanian races. These migrated to other parts, and some are believed to have originated the Semitic tribes. Such of the Chandalas as remained were treated with the greatest barbarity by the Rishis or ancient Brahmin rulers, and were compelled to submit to a slavery which reads like that of the Hebrews in Egypt. There were ex-Brahmins amongst them, and a caste system was established amongst the tribes which the Rishis did their best to suppress. It is not possible to give any reliable estimate of the centuries that elapsed before the reduction into writing of the ancient hymns and the conversion of the rocks into temples of Cyclopean architecture. The late Baron Bunsen deemed that the date 4000 BC might be a very suitable era for what we may term the manifestation of light or the beginning of recorded history and the desire to transmit the same upon monuments in Egypt and hieroglyphics, in Chaldea upon slabs in the cuneiform, 
the Iran and the Hindu had developed the Avesta and the Vedas, the Babylonian and Epic upon the journey of the sun through the signs of the Zodiac, the Egyptian, the Book of the Dead, and the books of Hermes. But the nomadic Aryans of Europe had not made the same progress. The Celt was the most advanced, but used bronze tools until about 2000 BC. Hence, the esoteric claims deserve serious consideration. Their earliest buildings are subterranean caves wrought with infinite labor and perseverance. We should have liked to enlarge upon those wonderful cave temples wrought in solid rock, but space forbids. An interesting visit to some of these is recorded in the late H.P. Blavatsky's book entitled The Caves and Jungles of Hindustan. That of Elephanta is a threefold construction, and it is alleged that all castes and even kings wrought with a chisel in its construction. Whilst the oldest Cyclopean architecture is attributed in Europe to the Polesians, in India it is attributed to the Pandus, who were a pre-Brahmin tribe, and Ferguson regards the analogy of this style with that of the Incas of Peru as one of the most remarkable facts of history. It was in these prehistoric times that the symbols of the two creative forces of nature developed, represented by the Cruxansara, Lithoi or Lingam, and the Vesica Pisces or Yoni. They are equally the signs of a dogma which lay at the root of all religions in regard to fire, not the fire burning upon the altar, but the fire which that symbolized and was termed divine darkness, a spiritual or magical fire seen by gifted seers of which the earthly symbols are the pyramids, the obelisk, and the church spires. The oldest of the Turanian or Proto-Aryan races had an organized priesthood of three degrees, as in that of the art school. It is true that we cannot now give proof that such a system is as ancient as humanity, but we may accept its extreme antiquity from the fact that in the most ancient historic times, there was a widespread system of three degrees of theosophy amongst people hopelessly separated. The Finlanders, from the most ancient times to the present day, have had a magical system of three grades, which are termed Chatijat, learned, Asajat, intelligent, and Lalajat, incantators. The Babylonian Kazdim were termed Kartumim, conjurers, Chakamim, physicians, and Asafim, theosophists. There yet exists in India certain Kolarian and Dravidian tribes who possess a magical system similar to that of the Finnic and Babylonian races, and they practice a system of secret initiation which they claim has descended to them from a time more ancient than the invasion of their plateau in central India by the Aryans, a conquest occurring thousands of years ago. But we purposely abstain from following European dates as they are altogether unreliable. Their grades are Najo, witches and wizards, Dioni or Mati, Wizards and Bagat, diviner. It is said that in the grade of Bagat, the master priest goes through a part of the initiation alone with the aspirant, and that the ceremony is completed at nighttime with a corpse near to some water. Amongst these tribes are the Gons, sprung from Dravidians, who in early times reached a high degree of culture. In Chanda are the ruins of a palace and town with a perfect network of underground passages which have never been explored by Europeans, and which tradition states lead to a series of halls where secret conclaves were formerly held. 
Mr. James Ferguson, FRS, in a lecture read before the Bengal Institute of this country, maintains that the original occupiers of India were a Turanian race of builders who were tree and serpent worshippers, and that the Pelagian inhabitants of Greece possessed these same features. In each case, before the Aryan invasions and conquest of these countries. A full comprehension of this is the key to much that is puzzling in the transmission of masonry and the mysteries. There are important distinctions between the Hindus and these aboriginal hill tribes, the latter having no caste divisions. They eat flesh food and offer live victims in sacrifice for their gods and are essentially either of a Mongolian or Turanian type, like the Burmese and Japanese. The Median Magi, or sacerdotal class of the Proto-Medes, was originally so-called Turanian priesthood. But at some remote period, there arose in the region north of Bactria a monotheistic reformer whom his followers termed Zaradust, the first of the name and who is probably the same prophet whom the Hindus term Purusharama. And it is this reformed Median civilization which constituted the religion of the most ancient Babylonians and of the somewhat more modern Persians. It is clear that the race worked metals and built in brick and stone from their earliest migrations. In the time of Cyrus I, these magi consisted of three classes, thus named by the learned German scholar Harin, Harbed, or Disciple, Mobed, or Master, Destermobed, or Complete Master. These constituted a sacerdotal college over which presided a rab mag, or chief magian. The word magi, or mahaji, in Sanskrit means great or wise. Their distinguishing attributes were the kosti, or girdle, the havan, or sacred cup, and the barsum, or bundle of twigs grasped in the hand, a symbol not properly understood but supposed to represent staves that were employed in divination. But it is much more probable that it was a symbol of that union which was to give strength to their order. The cubical dice were said to be used by them for divinatory purposes. Aristotle asserts that this Magian pontificate was more ancient than the foundation of Egypt, and Plato, who had an exalted opinion of the purity of its doctrines, confirms this antiquity. Hermippius says that the primitive Zoroaster was initiated by one as an Asis, 5,000 years before the Trojan War, or, as is supposed, 8,168 years ago. And Doxes says that he lived 6,000 years before the death of Plato, or 8,237 years ago. In its proper place, we will take the rites of the Aryan mysteries of Mithras. Hecathorn asserts that the Indian gymnosophists were the disciples of the early Magi and that these magi had put forth 5,000 years before the Iliad was written the three grand poems of the Zendavesta, the first ethical, the second military, and the third scientific. They taught the duality of nature as exemplified in light and darkness, heat and cold, summer and winter, good and evil, of which two principles in the revolving cycles the good would become paramount. Ernest de Bunsen says that it is proved that the three grades of the Jewish rabbinical school are an exact parallel of the three grades of the Magi, that it was a secret school of scribes, its highest teaching embracing the doctrine of the indwelling Holy Spirit in man, and that Jesus was a rabboni. The Babylonian rabu corresponding with the Hebrew rab, the mobed, with the rabbi, and the distur mobed, 
with the Rabban or Rabboni, the Persian Mazda is equally styled Ami, Yat Ami, I am that I am. The British or Celtic Druids were a priesthood that had features common to the Eastern Magi and were divided into three classes denominated Bards, Ovets, and Druids. Michelet says that it is wonderful the analogy which the names of the gods of Ireland, Axir, Axavis, Quasmeol, Kabir, Bear, to the Kabiri. The evidence of Strabo is to the same effect and says that the British Druids practiced the same religious rites as existed at Samothrace. They caused their ancient progenitor to exclaim, I am a Druid, I'm an architect, I'm a prophet, I'm a serpent. We shall see that the Kabiric rites were the prerogative of priests and architects embodying the drama of a murdered god. There can be small doubt that the Irish legend of Gobam Ser, the son of Turibi of the Strand, who was murdered with his twelve companions by twelve robbers, is a vulgarized exoteric reference to the murdered Kabir in the Twelve Signs of the Zodiac. O'Brien says that he was a Gubrez, or Kabiri, and that Ser has the signification of Son of God. He advocates in his Round Towers the Phoenician origin of these buildings with their appropriation by later Christian monks. Often, as at Glendalough, seven small chapels or altars are attached. It is possible, as has been maintained, that North Europe was the center whence the Orientals derived their legends, and that Chaldean, whence Chaldean, was as appropriate to the Druids as to the Babylonian, and that, as the Essenians were Babylonians, the Chaldees were Essenes, as held by the Venerable Betty, and thus the Essenes, or Sidiana were Kuldis. The chief British gods were Hu and Serwiden, or Uranos and Gay of the Kabiri. And it is worthy of mention that there are druidical unhewn stones and temples in cruciform. The one in the island of Luz consists of twelve stones, each limb having three, and the subterranean of New Grange in Ireland is also cruciform. Higgins, in his Celtic Druids, mentions in Scotland as pre Christian a crucifix on one side of which is the lamb, and on the other an elephant. There's nothing very remarkable in the pre-Christian existence of such cruciform structures in Italy. It predates architecture. And the Reverend Baring Gould points out that there are in South Italy lake dwellings of an immense antiquity, where the cross form is of greater antiquity than the Bronze Age. The Cyclopean Temple at Gazo is built on the basis of a Latin cross and hence it was a religious emblem of the Kabiri. It is found in India, in the most ancient cave of Elephanta, and is equally an emblem in Central America. There are also two pre-Christian caves in Ireland of this form. We mentioned its use by the Maori race. Toland points out that the three divisions of the Druidical system, which we have mentioned, must not be taken as progressional degrees. There were three classes corresponding to soothsayers, physicians, and prophets. The last, or the Druid class, had four degrees conferred at intervals of three, six, and nine years. The Bards and Ovates were each divided into three classes with special functions. Talisin, as an initiate, exclaims, Thrice was I born. Now I know how to acquire all knowledge by meditation. The emblem of the Druid was a vetrified egg, chased in gold and hung from the neck, and which held up to the light, shewed a sacred token. 
the serpents or druids prepared it. It is generally accepted that the theology of these sacred colleges, even in the most ancient times, taught the existence of one sole power or creator of the visible universe, though triplicated in his manifestations, and that from him proceeded the minor gods, angels, and demigods. He, the one, was Dios in Sanskrit, Zeus in Greek, Tiu in Teutonic. The ancient inscriptions and books of the Egyptians place it beyond doubt. The Chinese, the Magi, Hindus, Hebrews, etc., all add confirmation, and various other proofs are adduced in the work entitled Natural and Revealed Religion of Our Brother, the Chevalier Ramsey. It is immaterial by what name the prophet or outteller who revealed this doctrine, whether Taut Fohi, Zaradas Rama, Enoch or Edris, whose pupil Abram or great father was, the doctrine of one God, uncreated, incorporeal, all-seeing, all-powerful, everywhere present, and dwelling incomprehensibly in his own unity, gleams out through the darkness of the ages. And though the doctrine admits of minor deities as agents of the supreme, the dogma of unity formed the background of all the ancient religious mysteries, coupled with that of divine incarnations, and that indwelling Holy Spirit in men which makes him equal with the minor gods. The examples which we have given of an arcane society divided into degrees, so widely separated by locality, by language, and by manners, from data existing some thousands of years ago, unmistakably point to a much more ancient derivation from a common center, unless we admit an intuitive need for some such system. We find equally the same widespread distribution of geometrical symbols intended to typify theosophical truths and embracing cosmogony and creation. It is held that each symbol represented a letter, a color, a number, and a sound, thus constituting an esoteric hieroglyphic understood by the initiates of every country. As an example, we might easily arrange a set of very ancient symbols forming the little-understood Masonic emblems, and equally carved by operative masons on the ancient ruins of Asia, India, and Egypt and these might again be applied on the plan of the old philosophers to the recondite mysteries of nature. Take the following as numerals. One, two, five, triangle, square, star, six-pointed star, six-pointed star with a dot, or six-pointed star with two lines, a cube, a cube with a circle, ten. In mystic crosses of equal antiquity, with all other emblems, we find the following forms, namely swastikas both ways, T, unk, X, plus, cross, circle with a cross, and a three-dimensional cross, each having special application to a dogma. We have already made slight allusion to the Kabiri, and all authorities are agreed that the mysteries practiced under this name were allied with the Cyclopean masonry and its builders, and that the rites and buildings in all countries were the religion and architecture of a primitive race which preceded the Aryan invasions of Media, Babylon, India, Greece, and Egypt. The primitive inhabitants of Babylon, whom it has been agreed to term Akkadian, were more nearly allied in blood, language, and religion with the Finlanders, Mongolians, early Egyptians, Protomedes, Pulaski, Etruscans, perhaps also American Indians, all so-called Turanian, 
than they were with the Elamites, Ethiopians, Arabians, and other Semites, or with the Hindu, Persian, and other Aryan races that appear later on in the pages of resuscitated history. Yet there are actual traces of speculative Freemasonry intimately allied with the religious mysteries. Amongst these primitive proto-Aryans, a clear explanation of these particulars does not admit of being printed, but every intelligent Freemason will be able to read what we may write between the lines and thus supply for himself what we may leave unexplained. Recent discoveries go to prove that Palestine had its Kabiric or Magian rites and that long before the invasion of the brigand Joshua, the son of Nun, as an old inscription is said to term that scriptural warrior, Akkadian civilization existed in Syria, and the legendary Cain, Abel, and Seth of Genesis and their progeny find their analogies in other of the religious mysteries. But the Talmud or Mishnah, which is a very ancient explanation of the law, differs materially from Genesis. Thus, it is said that in the days of Cain's son Enoch and in the days of Seth's son Enosh, the people made images of copper and wood to worship, and it is to Kenan, the son of Enosh, that the Talmud attributes the prophecies of the destruction of the world, which he wrote upon tablets of stone. Enoch is represented as a hermit, and the word implies initiation. Lamech, when blind by age, is said to shoot his progenitor Cain by the accident of an arrow, and further, in his grief, kills by accident his own son. Hence the tradition lament of Lamech in Genesis, which has been supposed to be a veiled confession of initiation. The scriptural Tubal Cain, who was son of Lamech by the daughter of the Sethite Kenan, seems to be equally a Kabiric legend in the Chrysler of Sanchoniathon a Phoenician historian who was supposed to have lived as a contemporary of King Solomon. Equally, Tubal-Cain and Chrysor is the Vulcan of Greek mythology. Sanchoniathon says of this Chrysor, men worshipped him as a god after his death, and they called him Diamatius, or the great inventor, and some say his brother invented the making of walls and bricks. After these things of his race were born two young men, one of whom was called Technites, or the artist, the other Genos, Otokthon, or Earthborn, or generated from the earth itself. These men found out to mix stubble with the brick earth and to dry the bricks so made in the sun. Sanchoniathan further states that Eupistos was deified after he had been torn in pieces by wild beasts and that he was the father of Uranos, who invented sculpture, and of Tautus, who invented hieroglyphics, and represented the constellations by pictures. He says also that in the third generation, two pillars were erected which were dedicated to fire and wind. According to F. von Schlegel, there exists a tribe in Eastern Asia, in the mountains, that possesses an inverted history resembling the Cain and Abel legend. But with these people, it is the youngest brother who, out of envy at the success of his eldest brother in mining for gold and silver, drives him out of the fatherland into the east. This writer, in his philosophy of history, thinks that the war of races, the giants and the titans, may be traced in the biblical legends, and he is inclined to identify the holy Sethite race with the seven holy rishis of Brahminical tradition. He also supposes that the confession of Lamech may hint at the beginning of human sacrifice. As Cain's offering was the fruits of the earth, animal life ought to have been as sacred to him as to the Buddhists, 
as Cain was the eldest son of Schlegel's view would make him the prototype of the Turanians, while Seth would represent the prehistoric Aryan. And these races, the Talmud would again reunite in the posterity of Lamech, which does actually point to the union of religion and art. As a matter of fact, the Babylonian, Phoenician, and Jewish legends of the invention of the arts can only be looked upon as an attempt to explain the remote origin of these, something invented to please the curious and to point out the early period at which these were supposed to have successively originated. The Persians have similar legends applied to their own people. We are not without some proof to shew that an esoteric Masonic system was known to these early races from which proceeded the hundred families that founded the Chinese culture, owing to the researches of Professor de la Compierre, Douglas, and Ball, it has been established that the Bach tribes, which entered China about 4,000 years ago, had the archaic cuneiform character and the customs of the tribes of Elam and Chaldea, which alone is sufficient to establish a community of race. The Yiking, or Book of Changes, in its original form was about a sixth of its present extent and termed the Ku Wen, and it's a vocabulary of the primitive cuneiform thus uniting with the other countries which used it. There can be no doubt that the primitive mysteries were held in groves and that the initiates, as in the Druidical rites, were received in the eye of day, the trials being rather moral than physical, the latter being a later stage when the schools had somewhat degenerated and temples specially adapted for the physical proofs began to be built. Before we enter upon the nature of the Kabiric mysteries and the architecture termed Cyclopean, we will endeavor to prove that in the most ancient times there was in existence an actual society such as we now term Freemasonry. We will first take the Chinese, who are the most primitive of civilized races and still retain their monosyllabic language, represented by hieroglyphics, of which each is the picture of a root word, of such value with that characteristic meaning is understood throughout the empire, even where the spoken language is mutually unintelligible. It is a culture concreted thousands of years ago amongst a race closely allied in language, religion, mythology, and astronomy with Akkadian Babylon. Moreover, the archaic tablets of Tibet have mystical allusions and consonants with the mysteries, but we will allude to these in a later chapter. There occurred in the year 1879 in the District Grand Lodge of China a discussion upon the subject we have mentioned above, from which we learn that about 4,000 years ago this people had a symbolism identical with the Masonic craft. An altar in form of a perfect cube was used to typify the earth, and this may be read in conjunction with what we wrote in our last chapter on the Maori rites, the circle being an emblem of heaven and earth and heaven in union were Kabiric deities. The NE and SE are relatively used to imply the beginning and conclusion of an object in view. One of the oldest words in the language is literally square encompasses and signifies right conduct. The skiret, as in hieroglyphic, signifies the origin of things. When the emperor of a new dynasty succeeded, he began the erection of a new temple under the oversight of a grand architect. Aprons were used which bore emblems denoting religious office. There is a plant, an axe, and another not clear. The Shu King, which is one of the oldest books in the language, gives the representation of two jewels in jade stone, which is one of the hardest and most valuable of all stones and the most difficult to work. These two are the square and the plum rule. The same book speaks of Chen Yen, 
magistrates, which is literally level men, implying what is expected of them. And the three chief officers of state are called Sanchai, the three houses or builders. And one of the most ancient names of deity is the first builder. The emperor Shun, about 3,000 years ago, had amongst his attributes the circle and rule. And the hammer in the hands of their kings was an emblem of authority. When a monarch died, the emblems of authority were returned for the purpose of reinvestiture. In masonry, this is done on the election of a new master. We learn from the Book of Odes that when an emperor sacrificed, he divested himself of his imperial robes, was barefooted and bareheaded and girt with a lambskin. At the spring festival, which has much in common with the rites of the Grecian series, we see following the procession of a boy on one foot bare and the other shod, but which they apply to the yang and yin or the positive and negative principles of nature. Brother Chaloner, Alabaster, from whom we copy some of these illustrations, says that this building symbolism was continued by the Chinese philosophers of the 5th century BC. Thus we read in the great learning that a man should abstain from doing unto others what he would not they should do unto him. And the writer adds, this is called the principle of acting on the square. Other similar expressions are used by Confucius 481 BC. And his later follower, Amencius, says that a master mason in teaching his apprentices makes use of the compasses and square. Ye who are engaged in the pursuit of wisdom must also make use of the compasses and square. Every trade in Japan has a guild, and they are said to have been derived from China by way of Korea 3,000 years ago. At the present time, we are not thoroughly informed whether a system identical in all respects with that of China existed in Babylon but there are indications that such was the case, as well as in Egypt. And we have already pointed out that Yi King was an Akkadian vocabulary of root words. Mr. St. Chad Boscawen has afforded us a note, where he treats of the ancient Calne about 3800 BC. In this article, he represents the Viceroy Gudea as Patesi, or scepter-bearer, subservient to the King of Eric and terms him the chief priest and architect as well, his palace indicating the art influence of Egypt. His statue represents him as seated and having the right arm and shoulder bare, on his knees as a tablet containing a plan, or what modern masons term a tracing board. Of his palace or temple, the edge of this tablet is divided into a scale of twenty and three-tenths inches to the cubit, a measure corresponding with that used in Egypt. Brother W. H. Rylands deems that this cubit may have divided the plan into checkered squares, though not shown thereon. Pure copper images of the Kabiri have been disinterred at Kalne. Very strong philological grounds have been shewn by Dr. Miller in his Har Mode for identifying the Chinese Masonic system with Babylon, and this must be read in the light of the remarks we have made thereon. One of the earliest Akkadian kings named Likbaga was a pyramid builder and, like Melchizedek, a king and priest of the Most High. He uses as a title the term Pateshi, which is thus literally translated Pa, anoint, Te, cornerstone, Shi, to strike. And the same term is used by his successors. Pateso is a hammer, and the term Patosi 
was the habitual designation of the images of the gods of the Kabiric mysteries. Likbaga seems to have modified Akkadian theology and was the crowned architect and apostle of Sin, Moon, Sama's son, Bel, and Anu. Another term was used by these kings and applied by Nebuchadnezzar to the most ancient kings is Patashi, Tsiri, which is translated sublime master by Dr. Schrader. It is connected with the Hebrew patish, a hammer, or the Kabiric hammer in the hand of Tubal-Cain, or the Greek Vulcan. With the Akkadians, the god of coppersmiths had the same name as the god of ironworkers amongst the Laplanders, and the words for iron and copper are the same respectively. It is, however, through the Aryan Sanskrit that we can more particularly trace the assimilation of Akkad to a building fraternity, where the word ak means to pierce, akra is a sharp point, akri is corner, akana is stone, aktan is the number eight or the angles which are in a cube, akman in Sanskrit is a stone and in Persian heaven, and as a cube symbolizes the eight cosmogonical powers, the word comes to imply the whole heavens. In Greek, which is an Aryan tongue, the name of the father of Uranos is Akmon, and Diodorus makes Ur or Uranos and Ops children of Akmon and parents of the Titans, who are again the Kabiri. Akmon is also an anvil, which means a meteor light from which iron was first made, for in Greek, Sideros is iron and related to the Latin Sidus, a star. The word ak in the Akkadian signifies to build or to make, hence we have ta'ak, tak, teg, a stone or mountain, and aka, a building, temple, or sanctuary. These significations further connect Akkad, or Proto-Aryan, with the Hindus and their architecture. Ak is also the monogram of Nabu, who is Mercury, Marduk, whence Nimrod, Nabu is therefore Mercury and the Hermes of Egypt, the revealing god. In Semitic Assyrian, Aben is stone, Abni stones, Bana, Habana is to build. The learned Alexander Wilder expresses an opinion that Nimrod, founder of Babylon, was of Tartar descent, in which language the word means spotted, and may point to the leopard skin in which the Assyrian priests of Dionysi were clothed. If Nimrod personates Kronos, as some hold, he was in that case a Kabiri or king of the race of Cyclopean builders. From all this, it is argued with much soundness that the first kings were both priests and architects, were the grand masters of these, and of the class of Kabiri who were first workers in stone and brick, and afterwards in metals, and that they transmitted a traditional doctrine of the temple, based upon cosmogony and the creation of the world. It explains why Genesis assimilates the worldly arts with religion and shews the high respect the Hebrew priests had for art, though deficient in practice. The Babylonians must have afforded information to Ezra, who revised the Jewish Bible, and it may be pointed out that these people were builders in brick rather than stone, and hence that the practice of art would vary in a country with that in which stone was used. Kabiric Mysteries and Cyclopean Work when we approach historic times, we find that the actual Kabiric mysteries were of Grecian continuation and perpetuated at Samothrace, where they had been in existence from a remote era, far into Christian times. 
and where they were held in great veneration, not only for their antiquity but for the purity of their doctrine. They are said to have retained much of their technique in the Chaldean language, and to have preserved much of the Masonic symbolism which we have seen in Chinese practice for the aboriginal inhabitants of Greece. Pelagians were an allied race. And Dr. Petri asserts that pre-Hellenic or pre-Aryan Greeks were in Egypt, either as friends or captives, 2500 BC, with a civilization all their own. Barbarous wars arose with Aryan Hellenes, devastated the country, and during an era of oppression, reduced the old inhabitants to subjection. We find them denominated Pelasgi, with a succession of 26 kings followed by seven priests. Egypt eventually sent them rulers who restored their country to prosperity, founded cities, and gave them laws. Upon this, we learn that the Kabiric mysteries were in practice at Samothrace, and that they were or had been a fraternity which combined art with religion. Herodotus says that Samothrace had these mysteries from the Pelasgi, and that they taught the initiated by a sacred tradition. Why the figure of Hermes, Mercury, or Casmilas was constructed in a peculiar manner, from which we gather that they used phallic symbols as emblems of the generative powers of nature. And this historian, who wrote 450 BC, tells us that the names of their gods were derived from Egypt, as anciently they used the general term disposers. The views of all authorities are in unison with those of Frederick von Schlegel who says that this primitive people were the constructors of the Cyclopean buildings of Greece and Italy, being the original inhabitants who were conquered and overrun by the Aryan immigration of Deucalion. That they were a people who had the traits in common with those of many other countries at a remote period. Before we consider their mysteries, we will say something of their architecture, the style which is of prehistoric antiquity. It was very massive and built of irregular and well-bound blocks of immense size, so well-knit that without cement a knife blade would not enter the joints, and so placed that a large block might be withdrawn without endangering the structure. The French Institute in 1804 traced about 150 towns which were in part at least Cyclopean, and 127 of these were in Europe. Strabo says that the builders were from Syria in Asia Minor, by which he means Assyria. The same writer mentions vast caverns in Argos, which had been converted into a labyrinth by the Cyclops. And here was a statue of the father of the gods, which had a third eye in the middle of the forehead, and which was said to have been brought from the palace of Priam at Troy, an Asiatic city intimately connected with Assyria. Pliny states that in the island of Lemnos, the home of the Kabiric Mysteries, there was a labyrinth of 150 columns, each stone of which might be moved by a child. Hence we learned that they resembled the rocking stones of the Druids, and Dr. Daniel Clark found a stone circle at the top of Mount Gargaris, where the gods, according to Homer, assembled at the siege of Troy. Pliny attributes the working of iron to their invention— and the first inhabitants of Sicily are said to be of this race. Achilles Statius, bishop of Alexandria, mentions a statue in a temple on Mount Cassius, between Syria and Egypt, which held a pomegranate in the hand. It is a temple which Sanchoniathon deems to have been built by the descendants of the Kabiri. 
This peculiar masonry is found upon the summits of mountains, a position in which Homer places the Cyclops and the Stragans and Theocritus, the establishments of the old Pelagi. As it demanded a large exertion of physical strength, the later but still ancient Greeks attributed the work to giants who had an eye in the middle of their forehead, as had Priam's statue of their deity. Mythology makes them sons of Neptune and Amphitrite, whom Jupiter overthrew and cast into Tartarus, where they become the assistants of Vulcan, thus assigning a sea pedigree to these workers in iron and stone, and typifying an enforced slavery by their Aryan conquerors. They are fabled to have made the sickle of the Greek Kronos or Saturn, whom the Latins made the god of agriculture, in whose reign a ship grounded at Samothrace, where the passengers settled and erected a temple for their mysteries. It is further pretended that these Cyclops constructed for Jupiter a cubical altar of brass upon which the father of gods took his oath before attacking the Titans, and upon this altar was engraved the name of deity. Three principal Cyclops are mentioned, Brontes, Steropes, and Parachmai. We see that like Hiram, who has credit for building the Temple of Solomon, the Cyclopean Kabiri were not only skilled builders in stone, but workers in brass and iron, a rare subject to Vulcan, and that all this long preceded the introduction into Greece of a masonry of flat and squared stones, which came into use about the time of the Egyptian colonization, after the ages of barbarism occasioned by the Aryan Wars. Besides India, which we have mentioned in its cave temples, and Greece, other nations have this ancient style of masonry, and Syria, under Babylonian influence, has many traces of it, older than the invasion of Joshua and the Abri. And it is quite possible that the Hebrew invaders had much of their special bias from the school of Melchizedek, king of Salem. It has been shown by Monsieur Parati that some of the most ancient ruins in Palestine are Cyclopean, or as he terms them, Pelagian, and he instances some at Euphrata or Zalza, and other places are later ruins of a mixed style, built compositely of polygonal and squared blocks. At Rama is a doorway resembling on a small scale that of Atreus at Mycenae. Cyclopean ruins exist also at Bashan and Baalbek. The Reverend Brother Fosbrook says, The abacus of the Gate of Lions at Mycenae, which was built by the Cyclopes, supports four balls or circles, which are again surrounded by a second abacus, similar to the first. They are supposed to be derived from the worship of Mithras, the lion being his symbol. The triangular form of the stone had a special signification. The Cyclopes were worshippers of fire, Vulcan, and the sun. Older and still more important than Mycenae is the recent discovery in Crete of the Palace of Minos at Gnosis. With its work of art and its Dedalian labyrinth of passages and rooms, but more remarkable still tablets and records partly in hieroglyphics and partly in alphabet. In an article in The Builder in 1865, Monsieur Renan states that this style is the most ancient in the world, except it be the pyramids. And he points out that Homer mentions the great strength of the walls of Tyrans and Mycenae and Argolis, the former of which is said to be 20 feet thick. 
The Etruscan style, he says, is derived from it. But when it had made a decided advance, as it indicates improved architectural knowledge, he also points out that wherever this masonry is found, there exists a tradition of an ancient race of giants who have passed away or been destroyed, and he attributes the remains of this style in Palestine to the Anakim, Raphaim, and the Canaanitish tribes. Britain, the Cyclopean architecture of the British Isles is prominent and may range from 4,500 to 1,500 years antiquity, and are well described by Toland as they existed 200 years ago. Numerous circles of stone were dedicated to the sun, that in the Isle of Luz, has 12 obelisks and a 13th in the center representing the rudder of a ship and reached by a passage of double obelisks, each of 19 stones with a 39th guarding the entrance of the avenue. We have here the 12 signs of the zodiac, the sun, and the druid cycle of 19 years. At St. Burian in Cornwall is a temple of 19 stones, each 12 feet distant and a 20th of greater height in the center. This may refer to the 19 years cycle of 12 months. In these temples, a large altar was erected, near which stood the Krumther, or priest, and adjacent are found prodigious stones which can be moved by a touch at the right place, whilst everywhere they resist all the strength of man. Toland mentions one of these cromleks at Kruik in Kavan, placed in the midst of twelve obelisks, covered with brass, on which stood statues of the gods, whilst the bowing stone was covered with gold and silver. The circles of Stonehenge are 3,600 years old, according to the calculation of Professor Norman Lockyer, founded upon its orientation as a sun temple 1,680 years B.C. This calculation is confirmed by the discovery in 1901 when making some repairs of the chippings from the two descriptions of stones, of which the two circles are composed together with rude flint axes and hammers of the pre-Bronze Age, i.e. 1500 to 2000 BC. In the face of the varied authorities, we have quoted it as not possible to come to any other conclusion than that the Cyclopes were the primitive builders and workers in metals, and that their descendants, the Kabiri, were, until we approach Christian times, a religious and operative brotherhood, which then became entirely speculative. There is a mythological groundwork for the assimilation of the various nations that practiced the Cyclopean style. Plutarch quotes Antiquities as affirming that Isis was the daughter of Prometheus, who as a revelator of arts was a Kabir and wife to Dionysus or Bacchus, and Dionysius Heliconassus says that Atlas left his habitation on Mount Caucasus and became king of Arcadia. Apollodorus affirms that this Atlas was son of Japhetus and brother to Prometheus. Pausanias informs us that the Arcadians were all Pelagi, as were also the inhabitants of Argos, and that the Pelagians had that name from uh, King Pelagius. Dionysu is Assyrian and also Indian as Dionysos, whilst admittedly Egyptian as Bacchus. Hence, the Dionysian artificers of Greece may have sprang out of the Kabiri. Raoul Rochette considers that the Cyclope Palamonius, to whom a sanctuary was raised, was the Tyrian's Heracles. H.P. Blavatsky says that the builders of the sacred columns at Gadir, 
covered them with mysterious characters and figures, of which the same is still found on the walls of Elora, that gigantic ruin of the temple of Visvakarman, styled the Builder and the Artificer of the Gods. It is quite likely that the physical and superior strength of the Cyclops has a foundation in fact, apart from the testimony of ancient writers collected by men at the stamp of Grotius in regard to the existence at one time of a race of giants. There has recently been discovered at Piedmont in Moravia the skeleton of a human family side by side with the bones of a mammoth, that of the man being of extraordinary size. At the grotto of Rocher's rogues, Menton skeletons have been found under 29 feet of limestone stalagmite, which may be reckoned to represent 8,000 years. That of a male was 7 feet 9 inches without head, and that of a female 6 foot 3 inches. Kabiric Mysteries In order to arrive at an idea of the Kabiric Mysteries and the several great gods or powers, we must recognize their antiquity and the fact that their chief constellation was the Great Bear seven stars. Of the Pleiades, a seventh star is said to be lost, the sixth present with seventh hidden. We must also consider the most striking facts of nature, which led to the division of time into days, months, and years. The first measure of time is a contest between light and darkness, a day and a night, or what is now known to be a revolution of the earth round the sun. The next measure of time was the birth and death of the moon, or what we know as a monthly revolution of the moon round the earth. It would next be noted that the seven stars of the Great Bear makes a complete turn round in 365 days or thereabouts. The 13 lunar and 12 solar months and the annual birth and death of the sun is a later and more complicated calculation of a year, though it corresponds with the annual revolution of the seven stars round a polar center which was what the Kabiri plainly commemorated. The sun was the Semitic rather than the Kabiric symbol, and may possibly be indicated in the archaic hymn of the Akkadian victory of Hay over the seven-headed serpent. Other changes of the symbolism succeeded, and we have the seven gods applied to so many spheres, or to the planets, and finally anthropomorphized into seven gods of arts. We read, The men of Babylon made Sukkoth Banoth, which is understood to be the image worship of the Pleiades. The late Dr. Walker Arnott asserted that none could comprehend Masonic ritual without a full knowledge of Hebrew astronomy. These considerations tend to prove the greater antiquity of the Kabiric system, as preceding the mysteries that made a dying god of our solar orb, and it has also a scientific basis as implying the origin of systems from that far distant central sun round which all the globes revolve. It is on these natural phenomena, spiritualized in the mysteries, that their ceremonies are founded. Apollodorus and Varro say that the Kabiri adored the heavens and earth under the names of Uranus and Ge, as the creators of mankind, Hindu, spirit, and matter. According to Sanchonithan and the Phoenicians, the Kabiri were the eight sons of Sedek, of whom the youngest, named Ishmun or Akman, or in the Greek version, Kadmilas or Kasmilas was slain by the others. Mesor, the brother of Sadik, was father of Taut and received the inheritance of Egypt, and the Kabiri record it, a claim that the most ancient inhabitants of Egypt were of this ritual. Of these eight, three were most noted and were termed by the Greeks 
Axios, Axioshersos, and Axiosheres. And as Z is but the Greek Chi, it has been suggested that these names may be transmuted into Chaldean as Ahea, Ashur, Ahea, which is equal to I am that I am. Mr. Edward C. King reads these words, Aya, Asher, Aya. And when Theodore asked a Jew the true pronunciation of the sacred name, the Jew said, Ya, and wrote Aya, for he was not permitted by his law to pronounce the sacred name. Equally in masonry, there is a word which can be written but not pronounced, and there is a mode of uttering that word which cannot be written. Some writers suppose that the three Kabiri, or Corybantes symbolize sun, moon, and earth. In the contest between which one is supposed to be slain in eclipse, and quote the words of Hesiod, stained with blood and falling by the hands of two celestial bodies. One of the gods was named Ubalos, pronounced very similarly to three words used in ancient masonry, which had a reference to Solomon's temple, which all ancient writers admit was a type of the universe. The slain Casmilas had the same signification as the Osirian sun god, and in the Phoenician, Babylonian, and Egyptian books and cosmogonies are some curious references which may typify circumcision, the Mithraic baptism of blood, and the Torobolium of baptism of bull's blood, which is referred to in the Phrygian version of the Kabiric rites. Thus, on the authority of Philo Biblus, we have it in the legend of Kronos that he sheds his son's blood as a propitiation to his father, Oranos, and circumcised his family. And from the words used, it would seem that this was symbolically acted in the mysteries. In another legend, El castrates his father, Uranos, in order to fertilize the rivers, in which is found the first germ of life. Again, Bel Merodach cuts open the dragon Tiamat, or Chaos, from which he proceeds. In the Egyptian ritual of the dead, it is said, the blood is that of the sun as he goes along cutting himself. Masonic writers tell us that the initiated symbolically imbrued his hands in the blood of the slain Casmilas. These murdered gods, as in the case of Osiris and Adonis, usually suffer in the generative parts, indicative of the transfer of the life principle. And it is said mythologically that when the two other gods slew Casmilus, they fled with a chest containing his genitals to Etruria, in which we have doubtless a notice of colonization. The Kabiric gods were held to be the instructors of mankind in all useful knowledge magical rites, building, smelting, and working in metals, shipbuilding, music, etc., and were denominated techniques or artificers. Sanchoniathan says that Uranos was the father of sculptors, as was Hiram the father, or Abiv of masons, metalworkers, carvers, and dyers, and in verity, a Kabir. Faber considers that the term Fabri, by which the Latins designated artificers in general, is derived from Kabiri. And he also asserts that all the most ancient remarkable buildings of Greece, Egypt, and Asia Minor were ascribed to Kabirian or Cyclopean masons as the rites also profess to instruct the candidate in incantations such as we know were used by the Akkadians of Babylon, that alone would indicate identity of origin. The learned Hyde attributes the name Kabir to Gabri, Gubri, fire or sun worshippers, 
And as the slain god is named Akman, which word also means a cube of eight angles, heaven or Ranos, it is therefore equivalent to the Semitic Ur and Urim, and remotely to Hiram, whose father Josephus says was named Ur. It is said that the initiatory ceremony into the mysteries of Samothrace lasted three days and was termed enthronement, and that mystic dances representing the motions of the heavenly bodies were performed round the throne, which connects the rite with astronomy. A white stone was presented to the initiate as a symbol of membership. Hives of bees were preserved in the temple, and the interior cavern or sanctuary contained a pyramidical chamber as its most sacred place. Hecathorn asserts that in the Phrygian branch of these mysteries, they had a pine tree cut to form a cross, with the figure of a man upon it, and the same thing is asserted of the British Druids. The tomb of Midas in Phrygia is adorned with the equal-limbed cross, or the modern Greek form. Eusebius, who can see only the worst side of the mysteries, writes of them in the same style as the modern secularist upon the scriptures. Action, he says, founded the Samothracian mysteries, and Venus sprang from the member of Uranus, which was thrown into the sea. Wherefore, a lump of salt is the symbol of generation. These are what the Phrygians celebrate as the rites to Attis, Sebel, and the Koibantes. Certain signs were, I have eaten out of the tambourine, I have drank out of the symbol, I have carried the mystic salver, I have slipped into the bed. Similar expressions are found amongst the Druids, and were known to the Eleusinian initiates. They are but allegories, but not actual rites. Clemens of Alexandria, speaking of these mysteries, says, Know that having killed their third brother, they covered the head of the dead body with a purple cloth, crowned it, or encircled it with a caplet, and carrying it on the point of a spear, or bearing it on a brazen shield, buried it under the roots of Olympus. The mysteries are, in short, murders and funerals. Where two gods murder a third, the reference may be to two seasons and winter. Babylon We will now glance at the Babylonian contemporaries of the Cyclops or Kabiri. Barosus, the Chaldean historian, records that the civilization of Babylon was derived from a god who was half man and half fish, and who rose each day out of the Erythrian Sea and Lepsius has expressed the opinion that the legend points to Egyptian sources. The faith of the old Akkadians was of a magical nature in which amulets, as in the Kabiric mysteries, played a leading part. They adored the spirits of nature and the elements, whom they believed to be ruled by three great gods, Anu, the supreme, He, the ruler of the earth from his heavenly boat, and Mulgi, the lord of the underworld, or Hades. Each of these had his feminine consort, he is the counterpart of the Hebrew Jehovah. He walks with, talks with, and instructs mankind. And to him, which is possibly the most ancient in the world, describes his power and might and his victory over the seven-headed serpent. A metaphor equally found in Lapland, Tibet, Egypt, India, Greece, and even Yucatan. These Akkadians were, like the Egyptians and Mayu, pyramid builders, and the ruins of Babel or Borsipa, is of this nature. It came to be called the Temple of Bizida, or of the right hand, and there is an ancient cylinder which represents a seven-stepped pyramid, at the top of which is a colossal hand, and eight worshippers corresponding to the Kabiric gods surround the pyramid in worship. 
The locality of Babylon gave them in speculation two great pillars, the Mount of the World in the Northeast, or Ararat, which they also termed the Abode of the Gods, and which was to them what Meru was to the Aryans, and the corresponding mount in the southwest, whence was the descent of the domain of the Mulgi, the ruler of the dead, which descent was alleged to be guarded by seven concentric walls, with one gate in each wall. All the great mountains of the east are represented as the residences of a spiritualized race. At a remote period, the priests had composed an epic in twelve books answering to the zodiacal signs over which the sun god journeys. In Akkadian, Ishhubar, in Egyptian, Heracles, in Tyrian, Melkarth. It commences in the first book or month with the siege of Gizdubar, or Ishdubar, in Eric. It is light which overcomes darkness. In the second and third, the hero resorts for comfort to the prophet Hebani. In the fourth and fifth, there is war figuring the elemental storms. In the sixth and seventh, we have the lives and disorders of the hero and Ishtar, believed to refer to the moon's changes. Ishtar descends into Hades like Ceres of Greece to seek aid from the Mulgi, and is divested of some portion of her apparel at each gate of the seven walls. In the eighth and ninth, we have the wanderings of the hero and a paradisical garden. In the tenth, the hero is ferried over the sticks that he may be restored to health by Tamzi, the translated sage. The eleventh is a similar account of the deluge to that in Genesis. The twelfth commemorates the death of Hibani. In analogy with this sacred number seven, the Tower of Babel had seven stories, and Herodotus informs us that Ekpantana in media were guarded by seven concentric walls, each of which, as were the stories of Babel, was painted to represent one of the seven spheres or planets. The Mithraic mysteries, though proto-Median in their conception, were Aryan when we become historically acquainted with them, and they had had seven caverns of initiation approached by gates in a pyramid of seven landings and the trials of initiation are doubtlessly allegorized by the ancient Persian poet Ferdusi in the Heftkan or Labors of Rustam. In this, the implication is obvious that the mythology was more ancient than the erections which symbolized it, old as these are in the world's history. The Tower of Babel or Borsipa, which had been left unfinished since the deluge, was completed by Nebuchadnezzar with the addition of an eighth story, according to the original design. This last consisted of a cubical chamber as a shrine for the god, the appointments being of gold. The oldest temple in the world is said to have been discovered by excavators at Baia in central Babylonia. The walls of the tower were first uncovered and the summit cleared. The first inscription on the surface was brick stamped with the name Dungi of 2750 BC. A little lower appeared a crumpled piece of gold with the name Param Sim, who lived in 3750 BC, Freemasons Chronicle, 15th of August, 1908. In his Seven Great Monarchies, Professor George Rawlinson terms the Tower of Babel the Burz in Nimrod, the ancient temple of Nebo at Borsipa. It was a perfect square of seven ascents or stages, 272 feet at base, each way the four corners facing the cardinal points and the seven stages occupying a height of 156 feet. The highest of all was a perfect cube in the sanctuary of the god. Rawlinson's arrangement of these is as follows. 
three columns, stage, color, and planet. Basement, black, Saturn. Second stage, orange, Jupiter. Third stage, blood red, Mars. Fourth stage, golden, sun. Fifth stage, pale yellow, Venus. Sixth stage, azure, Mercury. Seventh stage, silver, moon. A similar symbolic plan existed in India, for we find seven courts of which the last or central ones have no canopy, but that of the heavens. In Egypt, the most ancient of the pyramids, that of Saqqara, consisted of seven stages. The same thing equally existed in Mexico. All the wonderful works wrought by the god Hea upon earth were performed by virtue of an omnific word, which would seem to have been lost to the Magi. Though the ancient priests of Egypt appear to have claimed that they possessed it, and they had a god whose name is hidden, the Jewish belief as to the power of the ineffable name of their god, J-H-V-H, Yavah, Yivah, or as we incorrectly use it, Jehovah, would seem to be based on these beliefs. Yavah reads, he causes to bring forth Assyria. A complete fusion of the Akkadian and Semitic faiths had taken place before 2500 BC, and the population had become known as Chaldean. Assyria, civilized from Babylon, rose into power, though its precise beginning has not yet been traced. About 1820 BC, Samsi-Vol built at Assur a temple to Anu and Vol, and Iratak built one called the House of Salvation. Samsivol also repaired the temple of Ishtar, then at Nineveh. About 1350 BC, Budil built a palace at Assur, which his successor Volnarari I enlarged and which his son Shalmaneser, 1300 BC, still further extended. He also restored the great temple called the Mountain of the World. He further built the new city of Kale, about 18 miles from Nineveh, found a palace of the latter place, and repaired the temple of Ishtar there. His son, Dugulti Ninip, assumed the title of King of Nations, King of Sumer and Akkad, and conqueror of Cardunias, Babylon. The next great builder was Tiglutli Peleser, 1120 BC. He rebuilt the temple of Assur after a lapse of 701 years, and raised there two pyramidical towers. He also improved the palaces of Assur and Nineveh, and left his country one of the foremost monarchies of the world. His tablet in the British Museum represents him with a Maltese cross, which hangs from the breast. And there is also one of another king having the like decoration. There is a somewhat remarkable Assyrian confirmation of the antiquity of the Masonic system of consecration to be found in the inscriptions. When Cyrus, king of Persia, discovered the foundation of his early predecessor in Assyria, Assur Banipal, he says, I laid the foundation and made firm the bricks, with beer, wine, oil, and honey. Other inscriptions mention oil and the sacrifice of animals, the foundation cylinder of Nabonidus, the Babylonian king conquered by Cyrus, speaks of the discovery of the foundation stone of the temple built by Naram-Sin, son of Sargon of Akkadia, the Semitic conqueror of Babylon 3,200 years earlier. Recent digging is said to carry Babylonia data to 8,000 BC. 
Something of the nature of caste initiation must also have existed amongst the augurs and sacred scribes. Professor Sace, in his Hebert lectures, has to this effect. A tablet states that an augur must be of pure lineage, unblemished in hand or foot, and speaks thus of the vision which is revealed to him before he is initiated and instructed in the presence of Samas and Rimon, in the use of the book and stylus, by the scribe, the instructed one, who keeps the oracle of the gods. When he is made to descend into an artificial imitation of the lower world, and there beholds the altars amid the waters, the treasures of Anu, of Bel, and He, the tablets of the gods, the delivery of the oracle of heaven and earth, and the cedar tree, the beloved of the great gods, which their hands have caused to grow. It is thought that each sign of the Babylonian zodiac had its special order of priests in all twelve. In very many countries, the eternal stability and power of the deity was represented by a square block or cube stone. Maximus Tyrius, speaking of the worship of some god by the Arabians, says, The statue that I saw of him was a square stone. Fernatus, speaking of the figuration of Hermes or Mercury, says, As the square figure betokens his solidity, so he wanted neither hands or feet to execute what he was commanded by Jove. Some approximation of the very ancient flourishing period of the Kabiric mysteries may be formed upon consideration that the Nagon Wat of Cambodia contains Kabiric sculpture in its architecture. The Fishman or Dagon of Babylon, and equally with every nation, including the Mayas of America, the monkey god. No one now knows what people erected the place, but Bovatsky, who is good testimony on a point of this nature, maintains that whoever built Nagon Wat were of the same religion and race as those who built the ancient pagodas, the Egyptian pyramids, and the ruins of Elora, Copan, and Central America. Egypt if we now turn to Egypt, we find it accepted by scholars that its earliest known population were allied with the Akkads of Babylon, by language and religion. Besides the affinity of the ancient Coptic to the Chinese and Chaldean speech, it is admitted that before the Osirian worship became general, and it is as old as Menes, the first king of Egypt, there was an identity of religion, and that the seven gods of Memphis represented in the worship of Ta the potter who creates the world out of the mundane egg, and his minor gods are identical with the gods of the Kabiri. The greater antiquity of Egypt would seem to be proved by the mutations of the methods of writing. For the Egyptians, besides their hieratic and domatic alphabet, reserved the hieroglyphic system for sacred things. The domatic was then used for secular matters, and the hieratic for their sacred manuscripts. This latter alphabet they transmitted to Phoenicia, whence through Greece and Rome, in a gradually modified state, it forms the characters of our own times. But when the Akkadians settled in Babylon, they were already possessed of the cuneiform alphabet, and although the exact locality where this was developed has not yet been settled, it is possible that they carried it with their language and religion by way of Bactria, from their primitive home in the Caucasian highlands, or those of Central Asia. The Egyptian Sesun, the Babylonian Nabu, the Akkadian and Aryan Ak, and the Chinese diagrams called the Kuas introduced into the primitive Yi King at a later period 
all have the same relation and are equally represented by eight parallel lines in two forms. The ritual of the dead or manifestations of light contains allusions to the Kabiric constellation of the Great Bear or seven stars, who are equally the seven sons of Ta, the seven spirits of Ra, the seven companions of King Arthur, the seven Hogetis of America, the seven Lumazi or leaders of the star flock of Assyria. They may also be applied to the seven Amashpans of Persia, the seven Rishis of India, and seven spirits that surround the throne of God. Mr. W. St. Chad Boscoen asserts that at a remote period, a close intercourse existed between Egypt and Chaldea, the point of junction of the two civilizations being the peninsula of Sinai. The old legends of Chaldea and the old hymns of Eridu, which, on the evidence of Silt, are assigned a period of 6,000 years BC, betray a culture derived from a maritime people. Eridu, like Memphis, was called the Holy City. And in Chaldea, we find a god named Asari, and in Egypt, Hesiri, or Osiris, whilst in India, we have Iswari. At the remote period of which we are writing, we have no written account of the nature of the mysteries practiced in either Egypt or Chaldea, and we must judge the secret rites by what we can ascertain of them at a later period. We know, however, that that which was applicable to the Kabiric gods of Greece and Chaldea was also applicable to the seven sons of Ta at Memphis. Sanchoniathon informs us that in the time of one of the most ancient hierophants, they had corrupted their mysteries by mingling cosmogonical affections with the historical traditions, from which we see that before his time they had diverged from the Kabiric ritual. It is very noteworthy that Egypt was the most prosperous during the eras which followed the accession of Manes, their first king. Most of the arts known at this day, and some which we do not know, are pictured in the earliest tombs. These include gold mining and smelting, Kabiric claims, of which we accept Tubal-Cain as the father on Hebrew evidence. It was the custom of the priestly caste to confer initiation upon a new pharaoh as was the case in Babylon, and there are traces of art symbolism to be found in the earliest times. Thus, the cubit rule was the sacred symbol of truth, and we are told by Diodorus that the ancient hieratic alphabet distinguished from the domatic or common was of this nature, as it made use of the tools of carpenters, and he instances the hatchet, pincers, mallet, chisel, and square. The most ancient ruins contain mason's marks, such as the point within a circle, the triangle, the trowel, the towel, and the triple towel. We give here a part of the first chapter of the Book of the Dead. The work is of a composite character and commingles the Memphian theology of Ta with that of the Theban Amen and the Osirian theology. The copies also vary according to the social position of the dead for whose burial the copies were intended. I am a priest in Abydos, in the day that the earth rejoiceth. I see the secret places of the winding region. I ordain the festival of the Spirit, the Lord of the abiding land. I hear the watchword of the watchers over me. I am the architect of the great barge of Soche. Ta. Building it from the stocks. A temple symbol. O ye liberators of souls, ye builders of the house of Osiris. Liberate the soul of the Osirian. Name of the deceased. He is with you in the house of Osiris. He sees as you see. 
hears as you hear, he stands as you stand, sits as you sit. O ye that give meat and drink to the souls built into the house of Osiris, living stones, give seasonable food and drink to the Osirian. Name? I do not compute my justification in many parts. My soul stands up square to the face of the judge. It is found true on the earth. Guild symbolism. Another passage says, As the sun died and rose again yesterday, so man dies and rises again. There are many passages in the ritual which clearly imply secret initiation. The representations of the judgment hall of Osiris, the living one, the master of life, the master of all, in all his creation, names, functions, diadems, ornaments, palaces, etc., is of a very impressive character and has been incorporated with Christianity of later times. In some of the papyrus MSS, both in hieroglyphic and hieractic characters three to four thousand years old, the spirit appearing for justification stands between Isis and Nephthys, pictured with the sign of a fellow Freemason. In others, he is holding up both arms, representing two squares, and this following the written statement that he stands square before his judge. Each district of Egypt had its trinity of gods. Thebes, in the 14th century BC, had the hidden god, Amen, maker of all things, thou only one, Muth, mother, mother nature, Kensu, the child. In the 4th century BC, we have Amen, or Kippurah, creator, Tefnut, humidity, Shu, light, Abydos, had Osiris, Isis, and Horus, Elephantime, Num, or Canumus, Anuka, or Anokus, and Hak. Heliopolis had Tum, or Harmachis. Nebet, Horus. Memphis had Ta, by Merenta, Nefer, Atum. Though this chapter has run to great length, something must be said of the architecture of this extraordinary people. The oldest structures which remain are the pyramids, and the most ancient of these is possibly 8,000 years old, and may be described as a mere cairn of stones. Next follows the Great Pyramid of Giza, which has been termed a stone Bible. The Masons might call it that wonderful religious, scientific, and astronomical tracing board. According to Herodotus, it was built by Cheops, whom the priests held in detestation as he had caused all the temples to be closed during its erection, its date variously estimated at 3324 to 4325 BC. It is said that the architect was Khufu Ankh, an Assyrian who was buried near to it. Cheops was certainly an Osirian, whilst the priests were opposed to that worship. All the pyramids had their official priests attached, and even in the earliest times, fabulous sums were lavished upon these structures and upon their temples. These latter were divided into three portions. One, an outer court, not always roofed. Two, the body of the temple. And three, the holy place and the shrine of the god in whose honor the temple was built. The temple of Jerusalem was of analogous character. Archaeologists consider that the prehistoric nucleus was the holy place, and that gradually other chambers began to be erected around it. The pyramid was the model upon which the builder acted, the walls sloping and narrowing upwards. 
There are grave discrepancies amongst the learned in regard to the chronology of this nation, owing to disagreement as to whether certain dynasties of kings were reigning contemporaneously. But the Great Pyramid of Giza, whatever its real age, shows a marvelous knowledge of geometry, astronomy, and operative masonry. The hardest granite has been chiseled with such mathematical accuracy that a knife blade will not enter the joints. And men of science suppose that they have discovered in its construction the evidence of a learning equal to that of the present day. The number five and its multiples is the radical basis of its measurements, precisely as the Aureliatish tabernacle is set up with the like multiple of five, whilst the Temple of Solomon works upon its exact double or ten. The pyramid is found to be an exact mathematical expression of the proportion which the diameter bears to its circumference that is, as 1 is to 3.1459. It is accurately oriented, that is, its four sides are opposite the cardinal points, and it occurs that twice in each year, at a period of 14 days before the spring and 14 days after the autumnal equinox, the sun for a short period seems to be resting upon the very apex of the pyramid, as if it was its pedestal. It is so constructed that 500 million pyramid inches, or 20 million cubits, represent the polar axis of the Earth. The height multiplied by 10 to its ninth power gives the distance of the Sun from the Earth, about 92.5 million miles. If the length of each of its four baselines is divided by cubits of 25 inches, it gives the exact length of a solar year, in days, hours, minutes, and seconds. The length in inches of the two diagonal lines drawn across the base gives exactly the number of years occupied in a full procession of the equinoxes, or 25,826 and a half years. The entrance is so designed that it indicates the obliquity of the polar axis of the earth, and the stones of the masonry above the entrance form the monogram of Osiris. It is a cube over which are two squares. The chambers are equally based upon intricate mathematical calculations and various astronomical facts are symbolized in the arrangements of its several parts. But for these particulars, the reader must consult some of the works which have been especially written on the subject. The coffer in the king's chamber is generally considered a pastos of initiation, but it is said also to constitute a standard of dry measures. Even a prophetical bearing is said to be found in its measurements. But as this is the least certain of these various uncertain correspondences, we will not enter into it here. Herodotus says that it took 300,000 workmen to build the structure in 30 years, and that one-third of the men and of the time were employed in making a causeway for the blocks. Noting its splendid work, we may ask, if this pyramid is only 5,000 years old, of what age is Cyclopean work? But the Pyramid of Cheops has a much more important bearing on speculative Freemasonry than anything that we have yet said. And though the secrecy of the priests of Egypt was absolute, yet is not altogether impenetrable, this secrecy was equally stringent at Memphis, Thebes, and Heliopolis. And when Pythagoras applied for initiation, he was referred from one to the other. The architect of Cheops embodied the Osirian mysteries in imperishable stone as did also the builder of the Babylonian Borsipa, and the designer of the Persian cave of Mithras. And now for something of the mysteries of Egypt, as represented by this pyramid. 
The entrance and its passage conform to the letter Y, or two paths, of Pythagoras and the broad and narrow way of the Greek mysteries. The descending path leads to an underground chamber, the floor of which is rough and unhewn, as is the rough ashlar of a Freemason. The ascending passage leads first to a middle chamber named the Queen's, or that of Our Lady Isis, and above that is the King's chamber with the empty sarcophagus of Osiris. Over all are five secret chambers of small dimensions. Dr. Oliver asserts that the Vesica Pisces enters into the constructive design of the Queen's chamber. The whole of the internal structure covers an all-important allegory. It has been recently shown by Brother W. M. Adams, and having the general approval of Professor Maspero, that there is a relationship between the internal structure of the pyramid and the ritual of the dead, or as Maspero says, both the one and the other have reference to an ideal house which Horus was conceived to have erected for his father Osiris. And Adams points out that the well, the hidden lintel, the north and south passages equally apply to the heavenly temple and the earthly counterpart. It is in fact the embodiment perhaps 6,000 years ago of a speculative and operative masonry consonant with the spiritual faith of Osiris. The religious symbols of Egypt, according to Mr. William Oxley's work on Egypt, changed with the progress of the sun through the signs of the zodiac, an assertion confirmed by much evidence. The era of Osiris and Isis is mythical, yet they are represented as parents of the twins Horus and Harmachis. In the year 4565 BC, the sun entered Taurus, and the bull became the emblem of Osiris. It entered Aries 2410 BC, and the ram becomes the emblem of Amen at Thebes. It enters Pisces 255 BC, and we have crocodile-shaped gods and the fish as a Christian symbol. The Egyptians conveyed something of this nature to Herodotus, who records it in a curious fable. Heracles desired to behold the highest god, he being one of the twelve minor gods. At length, to meet his prayers, the Supreme One revealed himself clothed in the skin and with the head of a ram. The late Godfrey Higgins supposes in his Anacalypsis that when the sun entered Taurus, he found man a negro such as the Black Buddha. And when he entered Aries, he found him still black, but with aquiline nose and straight hair as in the handsome Krishna. The recent discoveries of Colonel Ram indicates that the Sphinx is one of the most ancient monuments of Egypt, as it was in the days of Cheops, and there is a tablet which shows that it was repaired by Pharaoh Shepren. It represents, as facing the rising sun, the god Ra Harmachis, and has at its base several chambers hewn in the rock, the tombs of kings and priests devoted to the worship of Harmachis. During the 5th dynasty of kings, several small temples were erected, as at Esni, some pyramids, and an Osirian temple at Dendera. There is an inscription of the 6th dynasty in the Giza Museum, in which Una, a man of the people, describes how he had been sent by Pepi I to cut and then convey a block of stone for the royal tomb. He details the mode in which he accomplished this, with much engineering skill, about 3400 BC, and styles himself chief of the royal workmen. 
Usertsen I, perhaps 3000 BC, laid the foundation of the temple at the son of Heliopolis, and assumes himself to be the son of the double Harmachi. The same king built the front part of the temple at Karnak, which measures 1,200 feet by 348 feet. He also enlarged the Temple of Ta at Memphis. Professor Norman Lockyer, FRS, considers that as Karnak is orientated to receive the direct shaft of the sunlight at the season when it touched the horizon opposite the Temple Gateway, that it was built 3700 B.C. The superintendence of Egyptian craftsmen by higher officials is shown in the rock-cut temple of Rekmara. As 3,400 years ago, the vizier of Thebes is represented with all his attendants, inspecting all the handicrafts made in the temple of the House of Amen and teaching each man his duty concerning his trade. His inscription concludes, I have left no evil deeds behind me. May I be declared just and true in the great judgment. Boscoin in Globe, August 1900. A few centuries later, the famous labyrinth was erected. It represents the twelve zodiacal signs and the twelve great gods and contains three thousand chambers with a lofty carved pyramid as adjunct. As proof that the priests had a monotheistic creed, we quote the following words from over the gateway of the temple at Medine Abu. It is he that has made all that is, and without him nothing has been made. The Temple of Luxor is the largest upon earth, but space fails us to record a tithe of the mighty works of this wonderful race. The names of numerous architects are preserved, and Bruch, Liebline, and Lepsius give the names of 34, some of whom were allied with the reigning pharaohs. Commercial intercourse existed with China, as pottery and other works of art have been found in very ancient tombs. There is the record of an artist of the name of Retzen, of about 2800 BC, in which he says, I know the mystery of the divine word, the ordinances of the religious festivals, and every rite performed therein, and I have never strayed from them. I know how to produce the form that issueth forth and cometh in, so that each member goes to its place. I know the contemplating eye, without a second, which affrights the wicked, also the posing of the arm that brings the hippopotamus low. I know the making of amulets, by which one may go and the fire will not give its flame, nor will the water destroy. I am the artist wise in his art, a man standing above all men by his learning. One passage here can only refer to the egress and ingress of the soul in trance, as in the yogism of India, and the amulets against fire and water would seem to refer to the trials of the neophyte by fire and water and the mysteries. But in our days, very extraordinary tales are told about the priests of Japan and other less civilized people walking unharmed over hot coals. We wonder how this artist would interpret the following symbolic design upon an ancient monument. A lion holds in one paw a croxonsada, and with the other takes the hand of a recumbent man, whose head is near an altar, as if the lion intended to raise the man. At the altar stands a god with the hailing sign of a craftsman. The highest development of Egyptian civilization was during the patriarchal times extending from the 4th to the 12th dynasty, say from 7000 to 2400 BC, and before Egypt began to be affected by foreign influence. The kings had their court architects, the profession being held in such honor that this officer often mated with the royal family. 
during the whole period that we have named the highest positions of the state were open to intellect, and the humblest man might aspire to become a general, a court architect, or a royal scribe. The kings were the fathers of the people and accessible to their subjects, and a successful soldier or architect might become, as the highest prize, a royal companion, or a true royal companion, and be intimately associated with the king. Running contemporaneously with the Egyptian culture was that of the great Scytho-Hittite kingdom, the equal of Egypt in metals, buildings, and art. And Captain Condor points out that the point within a circle was their phonetic symbol for An, or God, the five-pointed star, the symbol of Tu, which implies either down or to descend, and that the Cypriot symbol of two triangles joined at their apex but without the bottom line was the Hittite character for man or protection. A long period of historical darkness now supervenes, and it has been discovered that a race totally distinct from the Egyptians had taken possession of the highlands to the north of Thebes between the 7th and 9th dynasty. They were a tall, powerful race resembling the Libyan and Ammonite people, had wavy brown hair, prominent aquiline noses, and used flint axes and copper implements. They were accomplished potters, stone workers, and metallurgists. In a ritualistic sense, they were cannibals and broke the bones of human bodies to extract the marrow. Near to the home of this recently discovered race was Nupt, a town which was devoted to the worship of the execrated Set, and which is mentioned in one of the satires of Juvenal, is the origin of horrid wars and cannibal orgies. Following upon this, as if in some measure due to it, was the domination of the Hyksos, or shepherd kings, who overran Egypt between 2500 and 1600 BC, perhaps dependent in part upon the ferment which arose in Central Asia when the Elamites invaded Babylon, and these Hyksos seem to have followed the religious views of the Semitic tribes. Though some writers have thought that they were old believers who were opposed to the ritual of Osiris, which we shall mention in our next chapter as an Aryan ritual, the weight of evidence is altogether in favor of a foreign origin of the invaders. Anetho, an Egyptian historian who was employed by the Greek Ptolemies to investigate the annals of Egypt, asserts that the Hebrews were of this race. Simplicius asserts that what Moses taught the Hebrews he had learned in the mysteries. These Hyksos were at length expelled by a Theban of the name of Ahamis, and the Osirian temples were reopened. Very recently the mummy of Menentah was discovered at Luxor, and on examination at Cairo was held to be the pharaoh who pursued the Israelites. He was the second king of the 19th dynasty. Thothmes III, about 1600 BC, relates the ceremony which he observed in laying a foundation stone at Buto, but the tablet is imperfect. The first stroke of the hammer thereupon appears to be intended to conjure the keeping out of the water. A document was deposited in the stone containing the names of all the great gods and goddesses, and the people rejoiced. There is also an inscription of this period on the statue of Semut, in which he is styled first of the first and master of the works of all masters of work. There are also geometrical diagrams of this period indicating the knowledge of the square, and in the Great Pyramid there yet exists a workman's diagram indicating the method of making a right angle. 
The Vesica Pisces exists in a recess over the king's chamber. Some of the drawings yet exist of a canon of proportion for the construction of the human figure, which Vitruvius represents by this X, the navel being the center. And through from the earliest to the latest times, the canon varied. The relative proportions were fixed by forming a checkered diagram of perfect squares. Clement of Alexandria says that the temples of Jerusalem and Egypt separated the congregation and the sanctuary by a large curtain of four colors drawn over five pillars, the one alluding to the cardinal points of the compass, the other to the elements. The pyramids were worked from the center by the angle 345. The guilds say that this symbol indicates the presence of three GMMs. There followed upon this era the introduction into Egypt of a large amount of Babylonian influence. But to render this comprehensible, some explanation is necessary. As some remote period races of conquering Kushites from Ethiopia, followed by Semites, settled in Elam, had planted themselves in Babylon. The first of them was probably a worshipper of the god Marduk, or Mercury, who was also Thoth and Hermes. For the biblical Nimrod is one with Marduk, the beginning of whose kingdom was Babel and Erech, and Ur in Akkad and Kalne in the land of Shinar. These newcomers accepted the religion of the earlier Akkadians, whence we may assume either that they had arisen no great distinctions in the mode of worship, or that the latter had influence as a race of higher culture. The conquerors, however, changed the names of the gods to adapt them to their own area Semitic tongue, and as astronomical terms are in that language, the inference is drawn that the science was a Semitic development. The chief gods of the assimilated race were Samas, the sun god, Sin, the moon god, and Yav, the inundator, who's probably Hay of Akkad. They accepted the doctrine of the soul's immortality. The early Assyrian king, Esir Nisir Pal, claims all the diabolical conquests which he relates in his inscriptions from these gods, and proclaimed himself as the exalter of Yav. The Semitic names of Beth Yakin and Yakin, as names of places and persons, are found in these early inscriptions. The remains of this theology exist today amongst the Yezids of Asia. The sun is worshipped by its old name, and the moon and bull receive equal veneration amongst some of the tribes, and with the worship have been transmitted secret modes of recognition, which a writer who was acquainted with them terms Freemasons' signs. It equally constitutes an argument for the possibility of the uninterrupted transmission of Freemasonry from century to century, and it is impossible to overlook the many striking points of similarity to the primitive mysteries which it possesses. And the inference which we may draw from this is that an educated priesthood had added art and science to their curriculum, and that all temples yet continue to be erected under their supervision. The Chaldean civilization about 4,000 years ago dominated Syria, and its tongue became the diplomatic language of the known world. Whilst commerce was maintained extensively between Egypt, Babylon, India, and China. About 1500 BC, an Egyptian king of the name of Amenhophis III, a worshipper of the Theban god Amen, married an Asiatic woman who surrounded the throne with her kindred, and a Babylon scribe was established at the court, for Chaldean legends were copied and sent to Egypt. 
Their son, Amenhotep, adopted the Chaldean faith and changed his name to Ku-en-Aten, withdrawing from Amen, then one of the oldest priesthoods in the world. He built in eight years the vast city of Tel-el-Amarna, where for 17 years he enforced the worship of the solar disk, or its vitalizing rays. It was in fact the worship of the sun's vital rays as the source of all vital life, power, and force. Probably in some respects it was a restoration of the faith of the Hyksos, but it terminated again with the death of the king. In the erection of his new city, Bek, the hereditary successor of a long line of Egyptian architects, is described as the artist, the overseer of the sculptures, the teacher of the king himself. His assistant, or what we should now term his deputy or warden, was Potha, who is described as master of the sculptors of the queen, by whom no doubt the Asiatic is meant. These valuable records have only recently been disinterred, and in the house of the master trial pieces were found in various stages, exemplifying the cutting of hieroglyphics, and as well perfectly finished portraits and statues, without any admixture of foreign style and which are equal to any work of the moderns. It is noteworthy that the ground plan of the tomb of the Queen of Amenophis III, about 1470 BC, is a cross of the Latin form and, as Mr. William Oxley says, exactly on the plan of a Christian church. The Ramesseid dynasty, in which the priests of Amen came again into power, did much in the 14th century BC to adorn Egypt with stately buildings and Beken Khonsu describes himself as the architect of Ramses II, the friend of Amen and the restorer of Karnak, and Dr. W. M. Birch informs us that the twins Sati and Har were Merkat, architects, who had charge of Karnak. Ramses III makes a record of the numerous temples which he restored. He built at Thebes a temple to the Khons, of good-hewn sandstone and black basalt, having gates whose folding doors were plated with gold and itself overlaid with electrum like the horizon of heaven. It is unfortunate that we have so little that is authentic in regard to the rites of the mysteries. Though the doctrine is fully embodied in the ritual of the dead, we only begin to have details after they have been carried to Greece by Orpheus, Cadmus, and Cecrops in the 16th century B.C. All the Egyptian kings were initiated into them, and are represented as adorned with very handsome aprons. There are also representations and paintings of scenes which may equally apply to the earthly mysteries, or to the passage of the soul in the afterlife, which was in reality the object of the sacerdotal mysteries, and it was a firm custom in Egypt to adapt their whole life to their faith in the future or to enact in their religious rites that which they believed would follow on quitting the body. In our next chapter, we may be able to form a more solid opinion upon the changes made in the Kabiric mysteries, which were clearly the most ancient of the great mysteries by the advanced Aryans, and as to the alleged changes made in ancient Egypt by the substitution of cosmogonical or natural effects. For such traditional history as that recorded by Sanchoniathan, Barosis, etc., a natural consequence for the Egyptians were undoubtedly a nation of mixed blood. They seem first to have been of the Negro or Hamitic type with a polytheistic creed. They saw God in all nature and in all forms. 
As proto-Aryans, they developed greatly the arts and sciences. Lastly, reinforced by pure Aryans, they became the apostles of the conditional immortality of the human soul. During the thousand years rule of the Hyksos, or shepherd kings, they were in constant contact with the monotheistic creed. But no sooner had they driven out these oppressors than the rites of the doctrine of immortality, under a father, mother, and son, arose in their old splendor. By way of closing this chapter, it may be pointed out that we have first a series of mysteries, which amongst people who, living in hot climates, had little need of art, and confined themselves rather to speculative views of the creation of the world and the relations that exist between heaven and earth. To these, in the next stage, were added the whole circle of arts and science. The older mysteries, as the creation of the world and the affinity between heaven and earth were retained, but a superior race of Kabiri added an improved architecture, agriculture, metallurgy, shipbuilding, and all the arts. The third stage which followed was the separation of the mysteries of religion and art into two branches. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.